0: My name is Rob Simpson and welcome to Directors Uncut. If this is your first episode we put filmmakers from all corners of the globe on a huge list that covers everything from Greek weird wave to blockbuster action and then we turn it into a lottery of directors by using a random number generator to pick a name out of the hat whatever name comes out. I'm joined by a rotating cast of guest hosts to discuss them and their work through two films but today we're doing none of that because it's a break from convention, we are doing a fright fest special. Uh, I did one we were doing this way back, but we have to have people who join me on this special. So this week I have been joined by Mike. Hello there. Hello. Cat. Uh, Hi. Hi. Uh, Vincent. What's up? <laughs> and uh, making his debut, Andrew. Hello there. Hello. Uh, how are you all? It's a loaded question, I know, a few days after Fright Fest. But...
1: <laughs> well, there Tired. lies the question, are we recovered from uh, Fright Fest or do we wish we were still there or are mm. we back to normal? And I suspect it's some combination of all
2: yeah yeah well i mean i've been covering i've been because i was lucky enough to get screeners in advance so i've been living fright fest since the end of july so <laughs> i have got no idea like what day time it's like it's like september tomorrow or something like as we're recording yeah. this and that's just like where did august
3: go so yeah, yeah. fright fest never ends <laughs>
0: no. <laughs> well not really they've got all sorts of events have now. not they've got a halloween one they've got a glasgow mm-hmm. one um yeah. Maybe true. sort of bridge the divide and do one in the middle of Scotland and London. That'd be that'd be lovely. <laughs>
1: that'd be nice. Friday Fest yeah. North. Yeah. Manchester perhaps.
0: Um Home would be a good place for it as well, I say. Oh that's what right. Yeah, sorry. Factors oh, yeah. in Liverpool. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so I guess we just jump into it really. I mean I'll have to defer to you because you were the people who went, so um day by day. Um Friday. Let's jump into
2: Thursday.
1: Thursday, Thursday? Thursday, Thursday, Thursday is night. when it starts. That's a long weekend. That's <laughs> well, it's a five day
0: weekend, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Although in fairness, it doesn't start until Thursday evening. And what a start it was on Thursday evening when we had um a big name of um in of among horror directors come and open the festival, both in terms of what he said and then in terms of what he did. Because who was it that started the festival? Neil Marshall. Speaking Neil of Bloody Marvin Marshall, Brice, yeah.
2: Yeah, he was there with the lair, which, yeah, it was a film that opened Fright Fest.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you set that off, sir,
4: clearly. (laughs) Yes. The pause in the room says it all. All
1: right. I I will say I didn't hate the lair. I thought I found some of it tense, I found some of it visceral, and some of it was quite pleasantly gruesome. But it was a lot of missed opportunities. I suspect that's going to be the kindest thing anyone will say about it.
4: I've got some kind things to say. Uh, It was never actively boring. Mm. It was pacey, it kept moving, uh, and the plot was coherent.
3: There you go. There you go. A ringing endorsement.
2: Yeah. It it was also... Because it was trying to be like a greatest hits of Neil Marshall, so you had... Um, elements of dog soldiers and the descent, with a couple of there was like a, a sword and shield at some moment, which was trying to be like centurion, and then there was some like nods to Doomsday, but none of it worked when all put together. There was some borderline offensive um, accents used. I know the the Welsh character in particular with some feathers with his overt wel- Welshness,
4: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: and just. The lead character was supposed to be like a, a Sarah Connor, Alan Ripley type, and she just didn't work. I mean, it's one of those cases where the lead character is res- pretty much responsible for the death of everybody in the film, and it's very hard to get behind a character like that, or at least that's that that was that was my uh,
0: my feelings. Is it better than his last one, though? Because he's not been on a great run, has he? I would um, say
1: it's an, an improvement over The Reckoning. Yeah. Then again, so are many things.
4: <laughs> a <laughs> marginal, a marginal improvement over The Reckoning. But he says... Um, the same lead. Yeah, the same lead uh, with whom he, he is very close and promises to perhaps mm-hmm. be the same lead in, in a number of his future films, um, I, I would wager. And... Sh- I, I believe he's now positioning himself as permanently moved back to the UK and permanently in this groove, and he's going to keep making films of this type in this budget range. And he's that's that's his career from now on, and he's committing to that. I think is is the the subtext of what he was saying at at fright Fest. and. Uh, if they were all as good as Dog Soldiers in the Descent, which is clearly what he's hoping, then that would be a, a, a pretty great career for anyone, just like a low-budget, almost uh, – <laughs> this, this is maybe too high praise, but a low-budget British John Carpenter thing where you're working the uh, – Working the tension and the the limited means and, and making something great out of that, which is what he did in Descent and Dog Soldiers, and is what he's now trying to do going forward again after after the big budget experience of Hellboy didn't pan out. But he's I don't know if he's lost his magic permanently, but it's it's just not there. And it's not there with the left.
2: Yeah I, think he's, yeah, I think he's letting Charlotte Kirk, who plays the lead, she also co-wrote this and co-wrote The Reckoning, and she's co-wrote his next one, and I kind of feel that the two of them together don't necessarily work on paper.
0: <laughs> mm, it's a pity. He needs his army jump, really, doesn't he? For Ben Wheatley, um, just to pad that reference out a bit. Ah, <laughs>
4: uh, yes. <laughs> he, he, well, he, needs, he needs someone who can sit him down and say, alright, this is the beginnings of a good idea, but at the moment, it's a bit shit, which <laughs> is, he clearly doesn't currently have.
1: <laughs> Fortunately, after the lair, would it be fair to say things picked up a bit as we received the visitor from the future? Yes. Well,
4: I, I, I really I really loved the first 10 minutes of The Visitor from the Future, which is almost like a little short film in itself. Uh, the rest of it was fine, but the first 10 minutes of The Visitor from the Future gave me the pick-me-up I needed after the lair for
0: sure. And what is The Visitor from the Future, sorry?
1: Well, The Visitor from the Future is um, more of a science fiction film than horror. Um, not that the two are mutually exclusive. And um, as the name implies, there is a uh, there is a visitor who comes from the future and comes back to the past to change the course of events. And he's being hunted by um, sort of a temporal uh, police um, And along the way, and he's got to go back in time and find someone who's responsible for everything that goes wrong and stop them from doing that. But wouldn't you know it, there are ripple effects, which we'll come back to later. Um, I enjoyed all of The Visitor from the Future. Um, it's a... I think it could be described as very French um, and I would describe it as Trois Colors Bonkers as it's <laughs> like you got it's like Mad Max meets Loki meets Dawn of the Dead meets Terminator. It's delirious. It's delightful as well as time travel and apocalypse. There's also zombies um, and wow. at, at, at it's heart, It's all about, you know, a father daughter relationship. Sounds um, busy. It's, yeah, it's busy, but it's got such joyous energy that I think um, I, I at least didn't stop to think about what was happening. That was me.
2: Yeah, I enjoyed it too. Um, it's actually based on a French TV series. It's so the same director, same cast. They did three seasons. I think it came over here in some capacity. Um, I'm not 100% sure on that, but it was definitely aired in france um i think it finished in like 2017 2018 and then they obviously decided to make a film i'm not sure how the film tallies up whether it's a a direct remake or if it's a continuation of the story but i found that aspect quite interesting that tv series that no one's heard of outside of france perhaps has has had this film which is now there on the imax screen
0: did the same with the returned didn't it a few years back before that even Mm. Mm. That was a film
3: first, I think, and then a tv series. So it's like the other way around, really. But
0: yeah. Okay. So following up a visitor from the future. Anything else on the on the it was Thursday, is this? Uh
1: yeah, there was um there were some other things there. Um the those first two were in the main screen. Um I I uh subsequently on day one I went to one of the Discovery screens and saw Croc. Um I Love Me uh creature feature. The first time I went to Fright Fest, three years ago, one of the highlights for me was Crawl, which was a great alligator movie, and this, I'd hoped, would do much the same with A Crocodile, but it didn't. I thought it was shonky, it was, in some places, actually incompetent, because I could see the um, audio dub relay wasn't lining up, so you've got words coming, and it doesn't match the way people's mouths are moving. Um, And too much pausing uh, when what you want, obviously, with something like this, is for it to be snappy. And instead, it was kind of, well, <laughs> okay. it kind of crawled, ironically. And you think, you know, A Crocodile in Hampshire, there's a great premise. But, uh, yeah, it was a squandered premise. Okay.
2: Yeah, so it's from a production company who are basically trying to be the UK version of Asylum Films. So oh, if that's, you look on their... That's- yeah exactly if you if you look on their imdb page i think in the last two years they've got about 40 production credits for films oh, really? that they have made in 2021 and 2022 so these things are literally made in in a weekend wow. and the story here is this couple go to get married in this idyllic place in in the countryside where there's no staff working it's literally just the guests and the priest and then um what, two crocodiles turn up, but then one crocodile disappears, never to be seen again, and we're left with yeah. one crocodile eating its way through the guests. But before that, it begins life like an old-school, late-night Channel 5 film where we learn later on he's the, the father of the bride, goes to look at the venue before bedding the, uh, the, the member of staff, walking him <laughs> And Cut to a couple of scenes later the bridegroom and one of the bridesmaids getting it on with the the lovely lines of, he says to her, you've been staring at me so hard all night, I thought I had something on my face, to which she seductively says, there could be.
1: That, oh, yeah.
0: That, oh, yeah. That's, that's as highbrow
2: as Croc gets, I, I feel.
0: What I love about those movies is it makes you think that, you know what, filmmaking isn't that hard, that I, people probably can have a go at it. The public Back. service that they're doing. That.
4: I, I would like to jump here in here and say that Croc was one of the most purely enjoyable times I had at Frightfest. It was knowingly terrible, but it was terrible in all the ways that can make a film fun. And it was just competent enough that it never came apart completely and uh, and and remained, for me at least, watchable throughout. The dialogue is abysmal, but it's abysmal in such a fun way. I, I laughed out loud during Croc more than I laughed out loud during any other film. <laughs> so I don't know, maybe you just need to be on that wavelength or in the right mood that day. But th- there are films I sit through and I just kind of grumble to myself, oh, this is bollocks. Uh, mm-hmm. But with Croc, I sat there with a big dumb grin on my face, saying, "Oh man, this is bollocks um, <laughs> in in the best possible way." Uh, the the lechy father of the bride, with his hunky muscles and flowing uh, but unconditioned hair, was was very amusing to me. I mean, he's he's there with one of the bridesmaids hiding in the bushes. She, she, she says to him, you're an, you're an ex-wildlife ranger. Tell me more about this crocodile. And he's just like, well, it shouldn't be able to survive in these conditions, and it's very dangerous. And <laughs> she says, tell me something I don't know. And he says, you've got a twig in your hair. And they just gaze into each other's <laughs> eyes, and then he looks off screen and says, "Oh, there it is." And then they run off. Um, I, 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 could have watched um, any number of films of this level of quality. If this production company is churning them out like this, I'm, I'm going to go away and track more of them down. I, I suspect this might have been. Um, uh, the needle in the haystack of of their production slate because they can't all be this funny. I think it might be lightning in a bottle,
1: but uh, yeah. What can I say? I loved it. Good, good. Uh, I'm I'm glad you did. Wish I had.
2: <laughs> yeah. So there were two. There were there were two other films that screened on Thursday. So whilst people were watching Visitor uh, of the Future, there was uh, Bitch Ass, which is a this is an attempt. At, it it it's billed as the first black. Slasher killer. Um, that that's that was its its big selling point. It's the first first black masked slasher killer. Bold um, clan. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's 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 set. We've got criminals as its protagonist. They go into this house, and the house has been rigged with um, booby traps inspired by games. So it's a little bit sore. So there's like a game of connect four. And he basically he basically wants to play all of his victims, and they've got to like beat him at the game, so there's like a a really warped connect for with guillotines mm-hmm. and I can't there was operation, so it's actually removing people's people's organs and it's it's very silly and it when I, cause I watched it at South by when I first watched it i was I was in until about forty five minutes in where he's killed all of his victims and then they do the classic thing of they suddenly bring in a load more victims and it's like, okay, well, the pace was flying and now it's had to stop because I've got to get to know all these new people that are inevitably going to get killed off again. So that wasn't, well, it's fine, but I think there's, there's better versions of that sort of film.
4: Yeah. Um, it, I, for me, Bitch House was like a, a throwback to the black horror of the nineties, like mm. uh, tells them the herd or bone, particularly bones, Uh, And so on. But yeah, mixed with this weird board game spin on Saw, where he has these board game contractions and he wants to quite literally play a game. Uh, I'm not sure the two halves of that necessarily gelled together very well. And it was also quite cartoony in a way that was very deliberate and stylized. Yes. But again, didn't necessarily match the material or come off. So it was like a bunch of different ideas pulling against each other, and it just didn't quite work for me, which is a big shame.
2: Yeah. And then the last film of the day on Thursday was Scare Package 2, Rad Chad's Revenge, which is obviously a sequel to the anthology scare package. So this time, um, Anthony Cousins and Aaron B. Kuntz returned, and they were they were joined by Alexandra Barreto, um, Rachel Rachel Wiggins, and everybody's favorite producer now turned director Jed Shepard, who brought uh, all the host ladies into uh, into his story, and. It's it's a big fun horror comedy anthology. There's a there's a story that skewers um, final girls. So it's it's called it's called Welcome to the '90s, and it's New Year's Eve, 1989, and it's on a sorority run. One house is the final girls house, and the house next door is um, the. Going to die house, or something to that effect. So it's all of your like are partying, partying females, and then inside the final girl house, you've got Ellen, Nancy, Sally, Laurie, and I forget I forget the last one, but it's basically all of your key sort of iconic final girls from the eighties. And the killer turns up, but they realise suddenly that the rules are changing, and the sorority girl from next door, Buffy turns up, and uh, it takes a takes a spin. So that was that was a really good way to start the anthology off. And then others, there's a sequel to one of the shorts from Scare Package, and then the wraparound story, again, is very sore. There was obviously a sore theme going on on Thursday evening with just so many references to so many horror films. So if you like the genre, there was a lot to, to unpick and, and unpack. And there's a, a great use of a fest favourite actor, Graeme Skipper, which I won't spoil because I think it's going on to Shudder soon. But it was, yeah, it was, it was fun. I think you had, I was a lukewarm on the first scare package. I preferred this one, but I imagine if the first one wasn't for you, then it's <laughs> probably not that worth seeking out. But I had a lot oh. of fun with it.
0: That's the sort of benefit of uh, anthologies, really, isn't it? It's It moves so quickly. If it's not for you, that segment, then there's something coming yeah. up in 10, 15 minutes. How was the quality of that one though? I mean, generally across the board? Is there that one, I mean, that's the gag, isn't it, with anthology horror, there's always that one bad one.
2: I mean, I wouldn't say any of them were bad. I would say that Jed's Shepherd's one tonally didn't fit in with the rest of them because the rest of them were very high camp silliness yeah. and his was a bit more somber it was um i think it was it was gemma or Haley's like brother had died and she, they'd inherited a lighthouse and then there was something with a remote control and a demon that was controlled by the remote it was like adam sanders click but with a demon sort of thing um but it didn't it had the way that it was shot was very moody and atmospheric which jarred with everybody else's sort of like over the, ta- over the top, like blood spurting everywhere. So it's, it wasn't that it was bad. It just didn't necessarily fully, fully work with the stories it was told against. So it sort of stuck out a little bit
0: because it's fair that. enough. Yeah.
4: It was the, um, I think it was the, the urban legend of the ghost you can see in the background in three men and a baby. So that pause- was it. there was
2: a lot there was a lot of talk about the yeah. uh, the ghost in three men and a baby.
4: So if you if you pause the tape the VHS at the right moment you can see the ghost uh, silhouetted against the window in the corner of the room or wherever. So there was a lot of that and she was pausing the tape and eventually the ghost well not not to spoil things but the the ghost starts to notice her back is the the broad premise. Mm. So if you're a fan of Three Men and a Baby and Urban Legends, um, maybe, <laughs> maybe maybe that would be of interest.
0: Is that odd diagram you've got there? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, on to uh, Friday then.
2: Yeah, so Friday in the main screen started with a double KO of everybody's emotions. Um, we started with Manny Elfman's Next Exit, which is a sci-fi suicidal road trip rom com dramedy and then it was followed up by Andy Mitten's uh The Harbinger, which is a a pandemic night like waking nightmare thing. So yeah. I remember two of my friends, they came out of next exit and the lady in front of them and had to turn around and see if they were okay because they'd been crying oh, so wow. much because they were so upset. <laughs> and yeah, the Harbinger is the one where the, the, the big scares were.
1: Okay. Anybody else see them?
2: Was anybody else traumatised by either of those films?
1: Uh, I am just annoyed that I didn't see those and with what I – and one of the things I went to see instead. But I'll hold off on that to see if, for in case anyone else wants to speak of um, Next Exit. Um, I, I saw
4: Next Exit and it was um, absolutely an emotionally pummeling way to start the day. Uh, I, I was pretty, I don't want to say drained because that's negative, but I, I, I really felt like my emotions had a workout. I'm sure that anyone who's dealt with, uh, issues surrounding suicide would have felt it all the more. And there were definitely people coming up the screen with tears in their eyes. Um, more than, more than just a handful of people doing that. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I would brace yourself if you're going to see next exit, but it is incredibly well performed. Um, especially by the lead pair. So if you if you if you are open to that kind of uh, subject matter and and willing to to go on that journey with them, um, it, it is really well played. So I do recommend it. And uh, as for the Harbinger, um, one of my absolute films of the festival, I thought it was brilliant, superior, COVID lockdown era set dream horror with a kind of um, plague doctor-influenced spin on the Freddy Krueger-type dream demon and uh, a, a wonderfully bleak, sombre, wintry, quietly apocalyptic tone, especially towards the end, like quietly ominous that I that I really appreciated. Uh, absolutely one of the best films at the festival for me.
0: Well, that sold me.
2: Yeah, it's from the uh, director of The Witch in the Window. Oh, that was a wonderful
0: ago. film. Yeah. Yes,
2: yeah, it's, it's the same director, so it's it's more of, of more of what he did is there, it? but just funneled into the pandemic yeah. paranoia.
0: There's a sequence in that. Um, I think it's where he's talking to um, his son, and his son's not there. He's like mile, many many miles away, and it's just the the dread of that moment is really really incredible. I think I might remember in that moment right. Anyway, it's been a, a few years yeah. since that one was out. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Hmm. So from them, um, Vincent, you were setting yeah. something up there.
1: I was, yeah. So um, first film I saw on um, the, on Friday was actually a sort of a double bill because it started with a short, Blood Rites, which was heady if kind of confusing, a um, combination of like teenage and occult horror about a trio of witches, young teenage witches, I think trying to feed on some man or other. Um, didn't enti- entirely work. But that said, it worked better than the feature that came afterwards, which was Splinter. Um, Now, Splinter is one of those very frustrating films that takes an interesting premise, because this had a really nice blend, potentially interesting blend of body and folk horror. But, oh my God, it was so incompetently put together. The plotting (laughs) was leaden. The acting was literally wooden. And the directing was downright amateurish, there was actually a moment where I could see not just the boom mic, but the boom operator in the background. It's like there's a guy talking and there's someone behind him holding up a fricking boom mic.
0: the was advocating though. Was it intentional maybe?
1: I don't think so, no. The film has a very kind of earnestness to it in a matter of it's a family, they're moving into a new home, um, the dad is, you know, make is making the place look. Um, you know, it's going to be good for his wife. It's going to be good for the little kid. Then he gets a splinter in his foot. Yep. And well, the infection that he gets from that splinter is more than uh, needs more than antiseptic. Put it that way. Um, and it brings up lots of, in- and as I say, it ties into some interesting folk horror ideas. And then there's this long sequence where the wife gives this very detailed. Um, exposition about what's been going on and it's like wow thank you for explaining it so for so the people in the back could hear um no i don't think it was being deliberately amateurish i think it wanted to be taken seriously yeah but, you know other opinions are available
2: so it's it's what is um turned like the grassroots horror so it's yes. the super super low budget one there was um, a film called Oh, what which one was it last year? There was one last year. There was a document, the Brilliant Terror. There was a documentary at Fright Place last year, the Brilliant Terror, that looked looked into the phenomenon. And it's basically people that are making these films for like a tenner of what they can get. And this is and this is what I felt that that Splinter was one of. It was trying to be almost uh, like Stephen King's Thinner, because the the wood that he gets his Splinter from is um, from a redwood, and the, it's trying to explore. The whole concept of, you know, America colonizing this land and the, the people, the indigenous people taking it back through this, this cursed, this cursed woods, this cursed tree. So it had a, it had a nice idea, but its budget just wasn't there. And at 55 minutes long, I can honestly say it is the longest hour of my life <laughs> that I've spent watching a film. I, I put it on at like 10 30 at night thinking oh i can squeeze one last screener in before before bed you know be nice i'll be like in bed before midnight and about 15 minutes in i was fighting actively fighting sleep so i liked what they were trying to do but they needed more budget like in i've been saying you know they needed more people they needed maybe to wait a while and do some sort of crowdfunding thing for it because it just didn't it didn't work
1: yeah, I will say, I did run into the um, the lead actor from Splinter, um, queuing outside what? the Phoenix Club, and lovely bloke. So I'll give it that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Lead actor's a nice guy. Well, I followed up Splinter with Daughter, which was um, something I was particularly looking forward to and was a big improvement. Um, Daughter is a slow, deliberate, and chilling portrait of imprisonment and oppression, and patriarchal authority and all its associated toxicity um a young woman wakes up in an um in a garage and is informed by this um sort of senior man that she is now daughter and she can only she must address him as father and now she's part of their family and yeah and it get and, and they and they can't go outside because there is a Apparently, a terrible disease out there sounds familiar. From there, and there's uh, aspects of what could be considered um, a kind of religious fundamentalism, without being explicitly any identified uh, religion. Um, yeah, and it's uh, I, th- I found it very impressive. It's um, a wonderful kind of chamber piece. It's like, yes, we're all contained within this house, but it, uh, but there is uh, so many different layers of oppression within that. Yeah. Daughter, I recommend.
4: I I also saw Daughter in that screening and uh, I really liked it. One of, one of my favorite films that I saw that day or indeed across the fest generally. Uh, It's it's worth pointing out that the father, the kind of fundamentalist patriarch is played by, as he describes himself, Starship Trooper's very own Casper Van Dien. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and the the lead actress is played by, I'm going to mangle her surname, so I apologize, but Vivian Yeo. Um, that's a Vietnamese surname that I've probably uh, mishandled. Um, she is superb. Um, and th- also it's worth mentioning that whilst the first two-thirds of the film are relatively naturalistic, um, there are there are hints of something a little bit strange in the way the disease is described outside uh, that, that that make you think that it's some it's something other than just a common or garden uh, virus. That's even if it if it even exists at all. The way it's described, it sounds a little bit weird. There are themes of um, objective reality versus subjective reality that are seeded throughout the first couple of acts of this film. And then in the third act, uh, it, it leans into that a little more heavily in a way that I found really quite playful. So I'm trying not to give anything too much away, whilst also uh, trying to encourage people to see it by by pointing out that it's, it's got a little bit more going on than simply a, a, a woman is locked in a house. It's, uh, yeah. it's, it's definitely got some ideas going on there, so I, I recommend this movie. Really good.
2: Yeah, I would also echo, echo all of this and, and say, go, go see your Daughter. It's a first time feature from, Cor- uh, from Corey Deshawn. Um, Vivian, who, who is the leader's daughter, also produced the project. And Casper Van Deen, you, you think, you think Starship Troopers, you think of, you know, the Point Sleepy Hollow, you think, what was he in, like, Mega Shark versus, like, Giant mm. Squid or whatever. You think Casper Van Deen, you think cheesy B-movie sci-fi, but here, he's really serious. He's really subdued. He, he wanted to do this project. I was talking to Corey during the festival and he wanted to do this festival. He wanted to do this film and he took a massive pay cut in order to do this project. And I think it's a testament to to him being able to actually, you know, find a decent script that he chose to do that because he, he didn't have to do it. But I think that the thing for me, the story is compelling and immersive, as the guys are saying, but it's the way the film is on a technical level. There's just so much that you can read through the camera work. Initially, she's brought in and she's told that she she is now daughter. And when the camera is, is daughter and father, there's wide spaces between them. But then when other characters come into the fray, the camera gets closer when they're together and it's like subtly pointing out where the allegiances may or may not lie just through through the visuals which I was for a first time first time director I was really impressed that they put so much thought into these shots because like, like we we're saying it's a chamber piece so it's it's just within this like this barn house building and the work that they have done it's like you don't really go outside but all of the production design on the inside there's lots of lots of browns they wear uh, lots of tan and there's lots of greenery. So it's like bringing the outside in and there's, I'm um, honestly, there's like future essay thesis on the, the use of like mise-en-scene and camera construction in this film. So yeah, I definitely, if you're into that side of, of film, I would definitely seek it out.
0: Hmm. Sold. And totally. um, f- following data.
1: Well, they going back to the main screen. Um, the main screen, um, had, um, showed, uh, A Wounded Fawn, um, followed by Night Sky. Um, So to go through those two, um, A Wounded Fawn was a very uh, weird um, film of very much of two halves. Um, I would sum it up as saying I thought it was thrilling, I thought it was intense, and at times I thought it was delirious. Um, You've got mythology, you've got psychological, and you've got a cult horror in there. There's... um, again toxic masculinity because let's face it what's more horrific um, there's madness and there's an interesting well an interest shall we say in poetic justice as well. Um, so we start off with this um, mysterious fella who we quickly discover um, is murderous although it's not entirely clear why um, then we meet um, a woman who is has been off the who's trying dating. And uh, you can probably see where this is going. And the first half is kind of like um, the recent film Fresh Meat. Um, And then the second half is, well, I suppose the closest thing that leapt to mind for me was The Evil Dead. Um, So I think it's got some, it's it's an interesting combination there. Um, And whether Hmm. that works or not, I think will depend um, on how you feel about sudden uh, narrative swerves. Um, you know, and the way, it and of course, also the way that it um, treats its particular characters. Because on the one hand, you've got your fairly humane um, female protagonist that we have um, that it kind of focuses on for a while, and then the focus kind of shifts um, onto this um, much uh, nast, this much nastier um, uh, male character. Um, I will say, I spent a lot of the time in the film wondering, okay, how much of this is it going on in the head? How much of this is Is this kind of a cult at work? And is there actually something supernatural? And I will say I liked the maintenance of ambiguity throughout. Um, So overall, I would give a wounded fawn a thumbs up. Um, But I believe it's been quite divisive.
0: It was one of the most hyped um, movies pre-festival as well, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's Travis Stevens that directed it. So Travis Stevens started off as a producer. He produced um, Cheap Thrills, Starry Eyes, 68 Kill, He's done a, he's done a ton of work producing and then he started directing with uh, the girl on the third floor. And then he did Jacob's wife and then a wounded fawn is the final in his, uh, in his gender trilogy. So girl on the third floor was all about toxic masculinity from the man's point of view. Jacob's wife was about femininity and how the patriarchy oppresses it and Jacob's wife. And then this one is kind of pitting femininity and masculinity against each other. So it's sort of a tying off that that series. I mean, they're they're all very different films visually and narratively, but thematically, there's there's a lot to tie them there. Um, it was Travis shot this on on film, and the film looks beautiful. It's set in the world of high art, and that's exactly what what it looks like. He has literally lifted some of his imagery directly from paintings and sculptures. Um, I forget the I forget the name of the artist who is. There's a quote from an artist at the beginning, but there's lots of their paintings have been reinterpreted into into frames. Uh, there's you probably won't notice it until a second watch, but in every single scene there is something that is red, and depending on where you are at the story, that red is more or less vibrant. So that's like it's I don't know it's he's oh to me he's just he's just pop art onto the screen in every way can and sarah sarah lind gives a fantastic performance as meredith she she initially appears like she might be the the stupid character like why are you going to like this place with this man you've only just met but she quickly reveals that she's smarter than than she seems and she is using her her women's intuition which may or may not be literally manifesting itself And then against her, you've got Josh Rubin, who's known much more for his comedy. He's moved directly, directing recently with Werewolves Within and Scare Me. But he's primarily known for his comedy work. And here, he is so good at this menacing man-child because he is, his whole persona is that he just doesn't like to be told no or that he can't do something by a woman. And yeah. I, again, I could talk. I could talk for days about Travis's work. and I love *A Wounded Born*. Did you, did you see it, Andrew?
1: I did
4: see it. Um, I did not like it as much as some other people did.
2: Mm-hmm. It's fine.
4: I I thought it was beautiful in places. Absolutely. I I kind of like the first half where it's more of a trad psycho thriller kind of plot line. Where you know the guy's evil and he's up to something, and you know there's tension from the the woman being a bit unsure about him, but not knowing what the audience knows, which is he's definitely a bad guy. It's yeah, it's got that two act structure with the switch in the middle, uh, and the second half. It I, often I like movies that play with ambiguity. You know how much is subjective reality, objective reality, what's really happening? Is is this hallucinatory, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. For me, it didn't, for whatever reason, I probably need to go back and do a rewatch to work out exactly why it didn't work for me on this occasion, which was a shame because I was kind of into it. Um, and I, I love the, I love the art of Leonora Carrington, who, as Kat mentioned, her quote opens the, okay. the film. Uh, she's famous for her surrealistic paintings of, um, f- that represent femininity, femininity and, and, gender archetypes in various ways and she uh, she's painted a lot of bird-headed people bird-headed women and all of that imagery comes up throughout the film there's even a close-up shot of one of her books at one point in the film so uh she's obviously a big influence um so I was I had high hopes because of that as well as for many other reasons but it didn't quite work out for me it uh I think Maybe I'm just making an assumption here, but there's a lot of Greek theater references, and I feel like it was probably drawing from Greek mythology in ways that kind of went over my head. So maybe there's a whole other layer of meaning there that I just wasn't getting. But for whatever reason, um, I was I, I was not on board by the time. <laughs> I was not on board by the time the end credits came along, except... The end credits themselves were the best end credits of the whole festival. So at the last minute, there was a nugget of excellence that I was really on board for. Uh, Brilliant end credits. So there you go. A a good lesson in staying to the end of the film because you never know, you might suddenly get something that delights you.
0: Okay. What did you follow that with, uh, Vincent? You said there was two.
1: Yeah, the next one in the main screen was Night Sky. Um, Now, we've already mentioned uh, Next Exit. Um, Night Sky is um, another road movie. Um, it's a road movie that is, for my money, you know, quite tense and moving. Um, it's, I think, more sci-fi um, than horror again, um, and a bit. Of, it's got bonding and it's there's pursuit. There's a real sense of redemption, and I felt it was very much a film about kind of rediscovering humanity. Um, we start off with this um, petty thief who's been badly hurt, um, and this. A woman finds him and um, fixes him up and then says, um, they, they're in Los Angeles, and she says, you're going to drive me to New Mexico? And he's like, uh, am I? And yes, he does. Off they go. Um, and along the way, there are a lot of encounters with, with I, okay, to be very reductive, with the landscape. It is tr- This is truly a film, I think, that makes the um, American West... Um, Captures it in all its beauty um, and its kind of sublime uh, majesty. If it, anything, you know what? It actually, th- just thinking about it now, what it probably reminds me of the most, even though it's got elements of Close Encounters of Third Kind and Starman um, and other films of that ilk. Oddly, from a visual perspective, it probably reminds me most of Nomadland, um, Chloe Zhao's uh, oh, Oscar winner. Okay. Um, the yeah, it is a film of really quite stunning beauty on the grand visual scale, the great on the IMAX screen. But having said that, it's also, I think, quite a beautiful tale about humanity and connection. Um, so yeah, that's my feelings on Night Sky, I believe. Um, but uh, to be fair, I'm, I'm selling it short. Uh, Kat has spoken about this far more eloquently.
2: put <laughs> in on the spot. Um, yeah, so... Night nice Sky, it's it's directed by um Jacob Gentry, who did last year's broadcast signal intrusion. Um this was made before Uh, he's been sort of going back and he wasn't happy with the first cut. So he's been going back and tinkering and tinkering until he's, he's made what it was literally him and a couple of other people jumped in a, in an RV before the pandemic and traveled cross country and filmed this film as they went. So you've got um, Brea Grant, who was also there with um, Torn Hearts, which we'll get to later. So she was, uh, she was the lead female. And then you've got AJ Bowen as, as the male lead. And Jacob did the cinematography as well and it's a film called Night Sky, so there's obviously there's a lot of there's a lot of sky in this film, but they are really beautifully rendered skies. There's a there's a lovely scene towards towards the start where they're they're in California still and they're in a convertible and the convertible's at the very lowest part of the frame and then the rest of it is just like the magic hour, you know, the sort of hour that Michael Bay loves, and it just looks it looks beautiful, and then as these characters, who are apart from there, so you've got um, the male character who is just completely closed off from the world, and then the female character believes that she can communicate with with higher power, with higher beings. So she's a bit of a space cadet. So she's not she's not really on Earth either. But as the, the story goes on, they become closer and mellower. And whereas the sky starts off really serene and peaceful as the story reaches its climax, that becomes more stormy and foreboding. So I kind of like the the juxtaposition of those. And for me, yes, there's the elements of Starman and our main characters are a little bit like, she's got a little bit of Lulu from the fifth element to her. But for me, this film has the intrinsic feeling and DNA of of the Terminator and Terminator 2, just purely in the sense that it's a road movie. And because obviously the Terminator films are road movies, and they've got this are sort of set in similar parts of the of the country, but there is also this unspoken romantic element which the Terminator has, and there is also a third character who is pursuing these leads for reasons that become clear as the film progresses. So it spoke to me on my Terminator nerd level, and <laughs> um, yes, it did lead to many conversations between me and the director about Terminator. So, yeah, it's if you go to Fright Fest for a horror film, you're not going to get on with it. But if you want something that's a nice, well, nice isn't a wishy-washy word, but a beautifully shot tale about human human relationships, then I don't think you can go too far wrong with Night Sky.
0: It has evolved a lot over the years, though, has it not Fright Fest? It's not just the a pure horror festival yeah. anymore. It's a bit more uh, genre agnostic these days.
4: Yeah. Uh, I, I unfortunately had to duck out for the entire second act of Night Sky, so I think it's best if I don't comment. Um, the, the impression I got was of a kind of budget star man that left me a little nonplussed, but uh, having heard Kat's description, I now want to go back and rewatch it and see what I missed. So uh, please, please do not take my words as having any value whatsoever on the subject. What I can say is that uh, opposite uh, A Wounded fawn was Orchestrator of Storms, uh, the documentary on the French director of the Fantastique, Jean Rollin. Uh, And I was lucky enough to see that a little ahead of Frightfest, Fest, so I've seen that as well. And, um, you know, Jean Rollin is, is really too much of a big subject to get into on on this podcast but for those who, who don't know him, he is very idiosyncratic. Uh, he has a very personal vision. He You either on his wavelength or you aren't very dreamlike imagery, keeps returning to the same tropes and images of basically sexy, sexy vampires a, a amount for at least half his filmography, I think. But um, if you can get past the slightly made on a shoestring aspect of some of his films and look at them as 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 real art then they're clearly ripped directly from his subconscious in a way that you just can't fake and this documentary was uh i think would be a great intro for anyone who's not that familiar with him and uh maybe a great love letter for people who are um it, it's in terms of its structure and its format and so on it's no Great shakes! It, it's basically a talking and clips documentary, but uh, it was well done. And if you're into the subject matter, you should absolutely check it out. And that's from uh, it's an Arrow Videos production, so I would imagine it's coming to their streaming service at some point.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I caught it um, at Fantasia, and I was not familiar, I'm particularly familiar with the filmmaker, so I was coming at it from the from the the new to it. I did struggle a little bit because there is so much information; it packs so much information in, and it was a bit overloaded because I knew nothing. But as Andrew says, for somebody who is familiar, it's perfect, and it gets quite emotional towards the end, as they unfortunately he's no longer with us, and they they go into into that in in a lot of in a lot of detail. And as you know, as a you know a layman to, to to him, it it did sort of intrigue me enough that on the ever expanding list of things to watch you know there's there's some of his films out there now
0: mm, cool um following orchestrator of storms there we go i remember that correctly um what follows that
4: well i've got i've got nothing now until the film that followed night sky in the big screen which was final cut so does anyone have anything from before final cut
2: No, I mean, I've I've seen everything on Friday, but I'm happy to go. I'm not going to go through all of them. Um, I'm happy to go with you. Let's go to Final Cut. Yeah, yeah, let's go to Final
4: Cut. This is a French-language remake of the Japanese film One Cut of the Dead, which played at Fright Fest when it first came out a few years ago. If you don't know the plot of one cut of the dead and now final cut, then it's a, a bit of too much of a spoiler to really go into it, but it's basically a riff on the idea of the, uh, kind of one take zombie movie, uh, no cuts, that kind of a deal. Uh, so it starts off with that and then gets a little more intriguing, a little more, uh, complicated from that point on. And, uh, and it's a comedy. Uh, so the one thing I'd say, well, the two things I'd say about final cut, are. There's no real reason for this film to exist. Um, it's, it's perhaps of use for French-speaking people who don't like subtitles and don't want to watch the Japanese version. Uh, if, if, you're, if you're okay with watching the Japanese version, just watch that. That's fine. The other thing I'd say is that uh, there's a slight caveat to that, which is that Final Cut does introduce some gags about the fact it's pretty much a shot for shot remake so it does reference the fact that the japanese version already exists and kind of uh milks that a little bit for some for some fun references but that's that's not enough to make it worth seeing um in uh, above and beyond the japanese version it's it's not as well paced it's not as funny it's it it just doesn't click in the same way for me so, a uh, uh, sorry, but uh, thanks, but no thanks from me for Final Cut.
2: Yeah, I would, I would echo that. I mean, the original is about seventy minutes longer. This one is just under two hours long. So yes, it does mm-hmm. add some some new conversation about we're remaking this film, but that doesn't warrant it being that much longer i know people that haven't seen the original and saw final cut first and they thought it was amazing but i think it is because as andrew says it's that that first experience of what they of what they do that is where the the magic is so if this is the first time you're seeing it great you're gonna you're in for a treat but if you want to you know if you want a treat with a cherry on top you need to go back to the original because it's done so well there
0: yeah the, so um, well the pomac the crosses streams as it were doesn't she not and she in this one too. So have I got that one? A bit of a trivia, right? The Japanese producer character crosses streams. So the the
4: woman who is uh, has has set up this film to exist for to launch uh, a, a streaming service or a streaming TV channel of some kind, uh, and and wants this to kick off the the launch day as a, as a one cut zombie movie. Uh, for whatever reason, she, she is in the original Japanese one and she is also in this. For some reason, she is now getting the French, a French director to basically redo the same plot. Uh, so she crosses over. I, and there are references to the original where the director of this version is looking through a, a, a brochure about the original film and scratching his head and trying to work out how to make it work in French and so on. And there, there are gags that come from that. Um, that's for anyone who's seen the original Japanese version. That's the only real highlight of this film. In every other regard, you're just constantly wishing you were watching the original. I think.
1: Okay. Yeah, I didn't bother with Final Cut particularly because I felt well. I've seen the original. The I don't imagine seeing this remake's going to add much to it when I could see something else. So mm. I did see something else. I popped my Troma cherry um, because, by oh, seeing no. Eating Miss Campbell. Um, yeah. It's being was... stories
0: about this one, hasn't there? Um, oh, on yeah. social media.
1: Um, now I can thoroughly, I can say that having seen Miss eating Miss Campbell, it left me thoroughly traumatized. Um, <laughs> it is, <laughs> it takes, it, it, it has a self-aware, um, breaking fourth wall capacity that would make Deadpool envious. It is more taboo and edge edge lordy, than is healthy for anyone. It's certifiably crazy, it's gory and gruey, it's stupid, kind of in a pleasing way. And the director and cast were there to talk about it. And I think it quite clear um that the director was kind of inviting people to um criticize or be offended by his movie, and he would probably just tell them to fuck off. Um, <laughs> I think it was. It was certainly an interesting experience. I don't know if I could wholeheartedly recommend it. Just in terms of, it will push a lot of buttons.
2: Yeah, it's going to push a ton of buttons. So it's it It's a girl who she keeps waking up in a different type of teen horror film. And no matter how many times she tries to kill herself, she keeps waking up in another one. And the story is of this one, she's in a story where she becomes a a cannibal. But it also... It's working up to an event inve- instead of the prom. It's working up to an all-you-can-eat massacre, whereby the winner of the all-you-can-eat contest gets a gun, which which they can choose to either shoot themselves or their classmates. So this is a film that is targeting teen suicide wow. and um, school shootings, which are obviously very controversial, very sensitive topics and. Whilst Trauma is known for being zany and controversial and pushing buttons and things, I feel that this might be a little too close to home with you know the state of America at the moment. And there's also that there is there is one joke in particular which makes reference to the um, to the Alec Baldwin tragedy, which that feels like at some point somebody should have read the room and gone, let's not include this one. There's a From- line. Yeah. yeah, from and a technical stand yeah. yeah from a technical standpoint, the the costumes are great. That our lead is a a riff on Wednesday Adams, and the Mean Girls are a, a pastel uh, Heather's affectation to, to to their costumes, and the, the 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 Miss Campbell, who is the teacher, which the lead becomes uh, besotted with, has a very um Betty Page sort of. Look and look and feel to her. So from that point of view, it's done that the gore is excessive and over the top, and the practical effects achieve what they they set out to. And there are there are a ton of callbacks and nods and homages to every sort of teen movie going. Like the the Mean Girls are literally described as the Mean Girls who are as rich as Heather's, but are too are, are, are hooked on jawbreakers. And Tragedy Girls. It basically mentions like all of the key teenage mean girls going, and it's fun at the start. Like, oh, it's referencing this, it's referencing that, and then it just repeatedly beats you over the head with the references to the point of you don't want, you just want them to stop. So, it's if you remove all feeling from it, it's it's a passable comedy, but the topics that it deals with are just so uncomfortable that it's hard to laugh. I laugh at the idea of you know someone killing themselves or their friends. It's just
0: it's pretty much you know. ensured that it's going to almost vanish as soon as it appeared. With things like that at this point in in time, it's
2: yeah
0: torn deaf Yeah, mm. I'm not even having seen it, just from what you've said, it's <laughs> yeah. Um, so something picking up the mood a bit, maybe.
4: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I, I can lift the mood a little um, because also in that slot was who invited them, which I loved, and um, which is in the process of coming to, I think, the Shudder platform right now. So by the time this podcast is out, uh, you should be able to see it on Shudder. It's yeah, uh, a middle-class family or a middle-class couple uh, in a new house in a lovely a well-to-do neighbourhood and they have a house party and then there's a couple of guests who claim to be their neighbours who just kind of hang around and don't seem to leave the house party. And uh, it's one of those... There's been a few of these recently, like... uh, um, Oh, what was the name of that other film? Anyway, it'll come to me. Films where an evil, manipulative person or pair of people play on the politeness of uh of, of the main the main person or the main couple. And there's kind of horror comedy of manners that results where you, they're just kind of like got these fixed grins and are being manipulated and too are too polite to get away. Like it's too polite to get out of the house. Too polite to to call the police. Um and uh there's been a few of these recently and this is a great example. It is pretty obvious from quite early on what the deal is which is a shame but it doesn't matter too much because it's just so well played, just so well written in every other regard Um, really tense quite funny as well really sharp on the kind of lies that couples can tell themselves or tell each other to kind of get through a relationship, make a relationship work Um, and the ending is Really quite playful in a way I liked. So uh, the the ending might lose a few people, but I really dug it. So that's a big recommendation from me. Who invited them?
2: Yeah, it's directed by uh, Duncan Birmingham, and it's got Ryan Hansen, who was one of the uh, one of the supporting characters in Veronica Mars, and uh, Timothy Guanaderos, who was in Thirteen Reasons Why. He was the um, can't remember his character's name but he was the one that got heavily into into the drugs he was the the boyfriend and yeah as as andrew was saying it's just really playful you can see where if you're familiar with this sort of film you can see where it's going but there's a lot of fun with it getting there and it's this sort of like older i say older but they're probably like my age so like mid to late 30s couple they've got a kid who's away for the night and then this much younger 20-something couple come in and they don't want to be, they don't want to seem uncool. So they kind of go along with a lot of things because they want to impress the neighbours and like get down with the kids. And I think as, as somebody who has literally just spent their weekend, you know, like forgoing all the grown-up responsibilities that come with being a mother, I completely understand why they do what they do <laughs> to some respect. So, yeah. uh, but it is, yeah, it's, it's, it, and, uh, it obviously being released this week it is a great sort of like Friday, Saturday night thriller, comedy thriller to, to, sit and enjoy.
4: The, the film I was trying desperately to remember was the Danish film from earlier this year, Speak No Evil, which yes. has uh, a, a couple going on holiday to, uh, to the home of, of another couple that they, they met on holiday and uh, similarly having trouble extricating themselves or separating themselves from, from this couple. Who, because they're just they're just too nice to to deal with the obvious danger. So uh it's a theme I like and it's really well done here.
2: Yeah, I mean it becomes horribly apparent to me that that is who I am. you know, who, who would you be in a horror film? I would be one of these really polite couples that would end up in a lot of trouble. So that
0: Speaking of Evil is um coming out to Should pretty soon, is it not? Yeah,
2: yeah, it's another one that's coming out soon.
0: Yeah, they've been very busy bunnies over Shudder.
2: I would just give a couple of quick honourable mentions to, to Hounded, which is the I believe it was the first film that Signature Entertainment have had a hand in the creation from sort of script to script to screen. It's a good good versus evil, rich versus poor, basically uh, an elite Tory family uh, who've had a fox hunting band have decided that okay, we can't hunt foxes, why don't we hunt criminals or mm-hmm. ruffians? So some some down on their luck um impoverished criminals get caught up and end up as fodder for the uh the fox hunting trio it's got samantha bond in as uh, the leader of of the rich and it's it's got some nice like some nice tra- there's a bear trap there's bits with dogs it's very it's got it's got a humor to it feels horribly horribly resonant in today's climate and you have to wonder how some of the more upper class people with certain political views will view the film as opposed to to others. And then the final one for Friday would be The Breach, which is um, from Rodrigo Gudino. I'm probably butchered that. I do apologize, Rodrigo. Um, and it's a sci-fi body horror Cronenberg mad science. Reanimator Invasion of the Body Snatchers sci-fi tale, scored by Slash himself. So, okay. if nothing else, it's got a hell of a soundtrack.
0: To Saturday, yes. So
4: Saturday kicked off with uh, Benson and Morehead. Something in the Dirt. Uh, I know. I know Benson and Moorhead have their their ultra fans. Um, I I quite like them. Typically um something in the dirt was very much a pandemic movie in that it's set almost entirely within and immediately outside one apartment with a a, a few short scenes uh, set elsewhere on a on a beach and, and so on um and a, a bunch of uh archive footage spliced in as well so you can see they're they're trying to do their best in pandemic circumstances and come up with a plot that can can work in that situation uh, it's a paranoid conspiracy rabbit hole thriller type uh, deal with the narrative. Like, So if you're into Umberto Eco and Thomas Pynchon and that kind of thing where you're uncovering the truth and then you start to get worried that maybe you're just burrowing down into your own mind and nowhere else. It's that kind of a deal. Um, is there a magical sci-fi force at play in the apartment or or not um and also it's it's a story of two chalk and cheese guys who are investigating together and um their relationship which is nominally friendly but also they're so different that under intense uh pressure arising from their their investigation they kind of start turning on each other and, and then in a really it's a kind of aggressive way so it's a a relationship study as well. Um, for me, it didn't work. It teetered on the edge of, is this all going to come together or is it just going to be a, a big, vague mess? And for, for me, it ended up being a big, vague mess uh, and my least favorite of Benson and Moorhead's movies. Uh, but like I say, other people really, really love these guys and maybe maybe some of them might have found something more to enjoy in this than I did.
3: Yeah, I say yeah. I, I consider myself like I quite like Benston Moorhead. So actually, I was only here there for the Saturday, so I've been just enjoying listening to everyone talk. Uh, but so um, I really like this. Um, I, I I think it's very much bigger. Like if you don't if you don't get on board with it, it'd be a very easy to fall off because it's just, it was a strange thing of like it felt long, but I didn't mind because as it was all sort of going, on, it was very much the feeling of or oh, where is this going now? Because it sort of takes, it's not even like, there are sort of narratives or twists and turns, but they're not like major ones, but it's just that strange sort of sense of like, you don't know where you're going and that's the journey that the characters are on as well. So I, I've, probably, I've probably, actually, of the one, I haven't seen Springs, you know, one I haven't seen, but I've probably, it's probably my favourite of theirs because I think it felt so, oh, wow. probably, probably because it was so localised in, because it was so small in scale. Um, I think it's literally filmed in their apartment block. That is where, yeah. you know, Beds and Morehead live, you know, it's, it's the place they know. Um, I think that for all that it's, you know, it's it's been done in a pandemic, um, you know, it still looks great. It's, it's got some very impressive effects. And I think it's that, it's that wooziness of like under the silver lake, um, but not quite as, insufferable in divisive. And like It's divisive yeah um it's also a weird little bit a little bit like nope in in the sense of the plot of the plot is basically two people wanted to get capture footage of a strange occurrence and um i think this this and nope would be quite interesting double bill i think they both work in that they take a quite small story and it f- but it feels bigger than that so yeah i really, i really jived with it
2: yeah, I, I do as well. I'm I'm Team Moorhead. I've seen everything that they've that they've done, including the the work that they've done within within various T V shows. And this one, mm. if it's very personal to them, I guess part of that is because they were filming it in their own literally in their own in their own front room during the pandemic. Most times there was only three people in the room. Mm. So there was Benson and Moorhead who were also the, the stars of the film, and then their producer, David Lawson. And whichever one was acting the other one was filming so it's that intimacy during filming translates onto screen Mm -hmm. but also there's a lot of they start talking about various things they tell stories to each other these two uh, Levi and John they tell each other these stories and then there's them talking about different theories and things and all of this is backed up with stock footage and some of that stock footage mm. is actually home videos from Benson and Moorhead's childhood. So it just feels very much like they have just put themselves up on the up on the screen. Which is mm. somebody that's been following their their career and the trajectory, I mean they're about to they're about to shoot Loki season two. It's it's mm. quite nice that although they've done Moon Knight They've then had the chance to to come back and do something that's very much them before they inevitably get swept up into this Marvel (laughs) machine and then never see them again.
0: As long as they have the – or continue to have that one for us – one for them
3: mentality right. I mean that's I what that's why I would hope that's why I'd,
0: I'd hope that
2: they're that sort of film filmmaking
3: duo. so, so you know, like, off the back of like synchronic which I only saw like just before the festival so I, like was, I was catching up on Vincent the Moorhead, and synchronic for me I was disappointed by because it felt like it was going to be a Vincent and Moorhead film and then it sort of had to de-complicate, It like it had to sort of simplify its ideas to into a very sort of less interesting form so it was quite nice seeing them sort of really dive into these ideas and and yeah, just focus in on what they do best, which is, yeah, just exploring his ideas and telling these strange little worlds.
2: Yeah, I mean, no disrespect to Jamie Dornan and Anthony Mackie, but mm. my big issue with Synchronic was that it wasn't Benton and Moorhead playing the characters. Yes. Because there were these characters who were supposed to have been lifelong friends and... It was very obvious to me that that Dawn and, and Mackie didn't quite have that dynamic. I and mean, when yeah. you know that that dynamic is sitting just behind the camera and is <laughs> capable of acting, you just think, well, this yeah. is obviously a studio decision to like, no, we need some names. We need to bring. We need to bring the punters yeah. in. And that was, that was my disappointment with Synchronic. And here, mm-hmm. they're back in front of the screen again. Mm-hmm. And although this time they're playing Strangers, in the end, they played Brothers, here they're playing Strangers, it still, it still worked in a way. And also have to give Benson props for um, fully embracing the Kurt Cobain bleach blonde sort <laughs> grunge look throughout, because that's not an easy look to pull off.
3: So you didn't recognise him at first.
1: <laughs> well, mm. while I didn't see... Um... <clears throat> something in the dirt um, and I you know I have seen some of Benson and Morehead's other stuff so I will check it out um later on um Saturday for me was uh all pretty much hits um I started off with um again a, a short followed by a feature uh the short was alien dick um, oh, from Brian,
2: is, um Kruger.
1: Yeah, a literal <laughs> dick pic <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, that was followed by the feature The Ones You Didn't Burn, which was a wonderfully eerie and dreamlike folk horror um, with a brother and sister coming back together to their late father's farm and then discovering, oddly, um, much like, say, uh, perhaps they did so, so, so many things that Splinter didn't manage to do, bringing in <coughs> themes of grief and recollections and recriminations. Um, I followed that up with She Came From The Woods, which I thought was an ingenious blend of comedy and slasher and occult horror. Um, It was genuinely scary. After that was what was probably my film of the whole festival, Lola, um, which was just stunning and terrifying, um, properly a kind of political horror warning of hubris as well as having some musical creativity and a thing I'm very fond of, which is critical nostalgia. And then after that, uh, a bit of a downer, but um, something I enjoyed, but I know it's been quite divisive, which was Dario Argento's latest um, Dark Glasses, which I thought was brutal and gory and had some really um, terrific style um, and did, I think, some interesting things in terms of presentation of The Victimized. The question so that was nice yeah, Saturday, with, very with, shortly
0: with Argento is he went off the deep end, probably <laughs> much harsh than any director in the horror genre has for a well, maybe ever. Um, sort of a post mid nineties.
4: I I'll say this: his his last good film for me was uh, 2001's Sleepless, and Dark Glasses is his best film since Sleepless. So. He's back on his kind of nineteen nineties through to two thousand and one level of quality with uh, with dark glasses, uh, which is which is a relief after the slump of uh, his Dracula movie and Giallo and et cetera, et cetera. All those all those naughties movies he made, uh, which which were just by all accounts pretty terrible. He's back up to his decent level. Uh, I, I really quite like Dark Glasses. I, well, I like the first two acts. Uh, they felt like classic, you know, not not masterpiece Argento, but classically stylized Argento. Uh, you could really, you could tell it was him. He had the the feel of Argento to it. So I had a great time. The last act was, well, this is, this is effectively a blind girl gets chased around thriller, of which mm. there have been many examples and many good examples, or at least a handful of good examples, Uh, and the best ones are always quite ingenious in how they show the blind character dealing with the fact that someone who is sighted is coming after them and kind of turning the tables and so on, and and they can be quite smart about it. Uh, Unfortunately, the third act of Dark Glasses is mostly just the blind protagonist running around in the woods screaming or um and mm. panicking so uh that was that was unfortunate in any other regards i really quite liked it
3: there was a thriller called like c for me that had a similar premise that came out a couple of years ago i think which i think made the most of that uh like plot better personally in my opinion uh i've only seen literally i think you sorry sorry I think that, no I think, I think
0: julia's eyes have gone back a little bit i think that did it pretty well from memory yeah. but that's about a decade
3: old now since yeah. that was released. Yeah. Because like, so I've literally only seen two Argentavs, so I came to this very much sort of, a, like, I'd literally just seen, I realised I'd only seen Suspiria, so I'd quickly fit in um, Bird of the Crystal Plumage before I came to Thrive, right so I could at least have an idea of what to expect. Um, and it was fine. Um, it, um, I will would, would admit that I'd had probably 50 drinks at the pub and I did sort of drift off uh, a bit <laughs> in the final act. Uh, I think I woke up for, like, the the inexplicable eels or snakes or whatever they were that they were there for some reason um but, but okay, it was quite <laughs> yeah exactly yeah i thought it was quite decent i had a very good dog i enjoyed i think the dog was my favorite. a, a very it. good boy a very good dog good girl. Very good, good girl um and i would also just be the um on the other side of the fence for um she came from the woods which i which is the only film i didn't really like from the, the whole day i i sort of i lost patience with it quite Quickly, it was doing like an eighties pastiche, but it wasn't doing it as fun as I wanted it to be. And I think that when it was trying, when it was playing it straight, it was fine for a while. But after a while, it was fine at first, but it sort of became less convincing as I went along for me. So I was a little bit disappointed um, with that. Um, I'm sorry, I miss Lola. I had a lot of good things about Lola, but because I was seeing Hypochondriac in another screen, um, you're
2: miss Lola. Making sure it's for Hypochondriac.
3: Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, it was, it was just, I'd heard I'd heard about before, and it was, it, like it was the one discovery book ticket I um, one discovery screen I saw, and it was one I booked because I was very intrigued by the premise, because uh, as the title card says at the start, it says it's based on a real breakdown, as uh, so it was about a, uh, a man Will, um, played by Zach Villa, in a best performance at the festival for me. It was an unbelievable performance he gives, um, who. Uh, he's, he works as a ceramicist and he has ha- had, In as a child he had a, tr- a troublesome child with uh, mother. his mother who had bipolar and she's now been out of his life for 10 years and then she starts to come in contact with him again and that sort of triggers a series of sort of, where it triggers a sort of breakdown and he sort of starts to lose the feeling in his arms, um, which may be traced to an accident that he has at work, but he sort of becomes very, it's, it's a real affecting movie in that it's you are in his head as he's experiencing this disorientation, this disconnection from the world, and he has his his partner who's trying their best, and he doesn't want to be a burden to him. Um, so he, it's 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 hard, of to well because it's quite affecting. Is is what I think you come out of it. And you just sort of have to sort of decompress a little bit. I think a lot of people um, were really hit by it. It's, I think it's a. It's a, a director did like a little introduction before. He said Donnie, he mentioned Donnie Darko, and that's very clear, especially because you get these manifestations of his uh, man in a wolf costume, very similar to where they get um, Frank the Bunny in Donnie Darko. And for some people, that's probably a bit too. He was too similar to Donnie Darko. Didn't, I didn't mind it per six because I think it worked in a really different way. Um, it's interesting, he also said in the uh, in uh, the Q and A afterwards that the horror, as he was developing, came last for him. I mean you can sort of tell it does feel more like a drama than a horror, but then at the same time it it's still all seamlessly combined. Um I really loved it, I it was a really, really effective piece of work.
2: I have I've adored hypochondriac since I caught it at South by Southwest, literally. I think I watched I watched the screen like three or four times before it expired. Um it's directed by written and directed by Addison Hyman and mm. um, as as the title card at the beginning suggests, it's based on his own his own mental health breakdown. And it is Donnie Darko meets Daniel Isn't Real. It's mm. looks beautiful. It's so atmospheric. The, the colour palette, there's lots of blues and greys with him sort of almost fading into the background as his, as his mind takes over and his paranoia and things seep in, he blends into the background and then that carries through into the end when, when things get a little different, but it's also got this really powerful love story at, Mm. at the heart of it because Will and his boyfriend, you know, they, they love each other, but it's that thing with when you're with somebody that is dealing with, with mental health problems, it, strains that relationship in in ways that you don't expect and Mm -hmm. and that in reality addison unfortunately didn't have a partner when he was going through what he was going through but in this there is um there's the boyfriend played by devon gray and it's just heartbreaking to see Mm -hmm. these two characters who are so close together at the start to slowly get ripped further and further apart as as this you know the, the mental health just declines and and takes over and yeah there's there's some like spooky imagery and stuff and it's the the manifestations of of the wolf but it just it really hits home to anybody that has suffered with like parental abuse or has had a parent with mental illness or has had suicidal thoughts who the breakdown of a relationship even the boss played by um madeline zimmer from like a cinderella story and so she's known and she was in the um, the the first collector film she's she's known a lot a lot more for sort of comedy roles she's like this influencer wannabe and like he comes to her with a problem and she's like i don't have time for that you know like selling ceramics is is my business not like dealing with your problems and i think even just from that point of view, anybody that's had that disengaged boss in retail, you can identify with. And I know that there was a lot of people that had to remove themselves from the screening because it was too much for them. It spoke to them in on a, on a really deep personal level. And I just think it's a massive shame that Fright Fest put it on in one of the smaller Discovery screens, because I think that this film deserves to be seen by as many people as possible because it's got such mm. an important story to, to tell.
3: Yeah,
4: I'd, I just want to uh, go back to Lola, which has been mentioned a couple of times. Uh, this is a found footage British movie that's unlike most found footage movies you might ever have seen. It's set um, around 1941, which is already <laughs> unusual for a found footage film. Uh, and it's about two uh, very well-spoken, uh, posh British women who um, live together and one of them has designed and built a machine which can predict the future or, in fact, show the future uh, as if it's pricking up or as it is, in fact, picking up radio waves um, via quantum mechanics. So they initially... Watch uh, a bunch of um, pop music videos and get really into David Bowie. Which is, I mean, well. if you're in if you're in wartime England and things are a bit depressing, what better way to cheer yourself up than watch David Bowie and uh, experience the future as if it was uh, the past and uh, and so on? Um, so the reason this is found footage is because they're filming themselves doing this yeah. and talking about the. Uh, the, the incredible machine, which is called Lola, hence the title that they've built. Um, as you might expect, such a machine would be incredibly useful in the war effort. So they get roped into uh, uh, using it to... Uh, tune into uh, uh, radio waves that give uh, information as to where bombs are going to hit and then after that where uh, naval battles are going to take place and so on and so on so the British war machine is using them to help win the war and um, that sounds like it's possibly a good idea but also you know because of the kind of movie it is that it's bound to go wrong and it does and uh, things things go horribly Horribly wrong in a kind of darkest timeline sort of way, and this uh, this involves uh, you know Nazis in England and all kinds of stuff, and it's uh, it's a it's a pretty great thriller from that perspective. I thought as well. Uh, the, the best thing though is when they uh, when they start tuning into radio waves from the future and they start picking up some very ominous pop videos suggesting that they've led the timeline astray. Uh, in- which are all written by Neil Hannon of Oh God, someone help me out. Neil Hannon of Divine Comedy, I think. The it? Divine Comedy. Thank you. Uh, and the song titles are things like "The Sound of Marching Feet" and uh, "Meet Me at the Gallows" and things of that nature. So that's that's the first indication that the future has gone dark. Uh, so the big question is: Can they can they reset things? Can they get the timeline back on track? Uh, I thought this was great. It's really amazing to look at. Black and white Bolex film, actually shot using a Bolex, uh, really well performed, really well imagined with the kind of modern pop music uh, in the 1940s, being anachronistic. Uh, towards the end, it does run into that found footage issue of why are they filming this and why are there multiple cameras going and then that sort of a thing. But I love so many other aspects of it that I didn't mind that at all. So hugely recommended
1: Lola. Yep, I would second all of that. Yeah, it's uh, Lola is very distinctive and really uh, powerful and very engaging. And I think it's and I think it's an it's got some interesting uh, things to say about our own sort of um, engagement with wider events. So yeah, highly recommended.
4: And the the footage as well that's spliced in. They've as well as shooting their their actors on a Bolex, they've also got archive footage uh, from the forties that they've digitally manipulated in all kinds of exciting ways uh, to depict to kind of uh, different. World War Two than the one we know. And it's it's really smartly done. So just on a technical level, uh, I thought this movie was, you know, it, it feels strange. You've got this kind of square aspect ratio and it's all black and white and it's hand footage and so on. Not the kind of thing that you'd say, wow, technically this is really impressive. But when it gets into it as the movie goes on, uh, some of the images are really, really nicely done. So um, just on that level as well, really great film.
2: Yeah, another another really great film is uh, the Leech, which is directed by um, Eric Eric Penikoff. Stars Graham Skipper, Jeremy Gardner, and his now wife Taylor Gardner. Um, Skipper plays a priest, a Catholic priest, Father David, who takes in this this homeless couple played by the Gardeners at Christmas time, and they aren't the best house guests, but as he as the david starts to get paranoid and he wants them to leave because they you know they're like they're not Satanists, but he sort of almost views them as that because they're into like their heavy metal music and and their drugs and drinking drugs but as the film progresses the uh the title of the leech starts to link more to him than to to them and it's this really it's it's funny it's you know it's, it's like a dark dark comedy psychological thriller i think we can all relate to that house guest that wouldn't go but this takes that to to the absolute extremes and just the performances jeremy gardner who is a director as well um he was he did um after midnight and he starred in that he him and taylor starred in Penekoff's last film statistic intentions and they're just so good as this sort of like white trash hillbilly couple that just come in and take over and are completely believable. And Graham Skipper, who is a staple of Bright Fest for like the last six or seven years, he again gives a role that he hasn't given us before in Father David. He's really jolly at the start and then he becomes something much darker and it's nice to see Skipper get get to do that. But at the same time, Pentecalf's like direction is... It's just so good. There's a there's a scene where the three characters play um, the the classic the classic getting to know you uh, thing, which was also seen in Ex- Exit the Never Have I Ever game. That was a staple of any CW show that I watched as a teenager. There was always an episode where they played a game. Of I have never, and that here has so many implications for where the story goes. But at the same time, there's there's drinks and there's drugs involved. Penikoff is manipulating the camera so that it almost feels like you, the viewer, are in that game and you are getting drunk and you are getting stoned or whatever. And the colours, as... As Father David loses his grip on the house and what's happening, so too the camera loses itself and gets shaky, and the colours become more vibrant. And then, whereas Christmas was in the background, suddenly there's fairy lights everywhere, screaming like red, white, and green, and it's just a lot of fun. Fright Fest normally have a few Christmas horror films, this year I think the, I think the Leech was like one of the only ones and. It's coming to Arrow in December, and everybody should have it on their Christmas list because it's just this fun, twisted, crazy little film that was made in the pandemic during a snowstorm in one little house over like a couple of weeks. And yeah, so I, mean the, I was worried when the pandemic happened that a lot of fright fest films were going to be like, "Oh, it's pandemic, oh, it's pandemic." But I think the filmmakers have been really inventive with what they've managed to achieve during during that time.
3: Yeah.
0: That's the classic ideal, isn't it? Um, Low-budget horror brings out the invention, and if the pandemic did anything within the horror community, it just sort of cemented that idea, maybe brought it back out to play a little bit. It'd gone missing for a while.
2: Yeah, I mean, Eric's previous film, Sadistic Intentions, is all set in one house. And so they'd kind of already, I think Jeremy at the time when they were making it sort of said to Eric, like, well, we've already done this once. So we know that we can do this in in a the, in the pandemic. And yeah, I think the low-budget horror guys have really come into their own during this new restricted way of working because they've already had those restrictions in place for years.
0: Mm-hmm. Hmm. Indeed. Um, anything left for Saturday? Uh,
4: very quickly, Raven's Hollow, which is e- the Edgar Allan Poe as a young army captain leading a... a- small group of uh, soldiers on a on a kind of scout mission in upstate New York and coming across a a kind of township called Raven's Hollow where he encounters a murder and then possibly supernatural occurrences uh I I was kind of watching this and kind of vaguely into it but not especially until I realized that it was best understood as a kind of comedy Um, In which the game, you could almost almost do a drinking game where the rules are you need to drink every time something from one of Edgar Allan Poe's poems or short stories is prefigured by events of the film. So uh, the the kind of uh, supernatural force in this is pretty much a giant raven and there's a beating heart and all this kind of stuff. It just goes on and on. So if you're an Ed Graham Poe fan and you want to play uh, tick off the reference, then you can watch this. It's very silly, and I got more and more into it the more silly I realized it was, so that was all right. Uh, there's Candyland, which is a grimy um, grindhouse tale of truck stop Sex workers and the nice young Christian cultist girl they take under their wing and uh the kind of what could go wrong, the, what could go wrong? and the, uh, the the escalating brutal murders that also start to occur um, uh it's if 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 you like a good stabbing, the third act of this movie will be for you. Uh, and finally Deadstream, which finished off the mainstream, uh, main screen on that day. Um, which was a kind of, there's been a few of these recently. It's kind of a YouTube live streamer type deal where there's a down on their luck, uh, not quite as many followers as they would like to have type, uh, YouTube live streamer. And, uh, they decide to, uh, do something supernatural to get the follower count back up, and it goes as as badly as you'd expect. Uh, in this example, uh, it's a guy spending the night in a haunted house. Uh, he's in the first act, kind of chatting to his followers and trying to trying to hype out how scary, hype up how scary this house is. And then as the film goes on, it all gets very. Uh, evil dead, frankly, big evil dead uh, influences in this movie. It's a lot of fun. As you might imagine, it all, the quality of this kind of film is always going to rest on how much you want to spend time with the main character, uh, because they're just on screen and talking nonstop. And it, it's a pretty great main character. He's, he's a very hysterical, nervous, highly strung guy, and as the film goes on, he's just screaming and blathering and, and, and crapping his pants. So uh, it's a lot of fun to watch in that regard.
3: Yeah, I'd agree. Both of those are great. Candyline, um really surprised me. I had very low expectations going going, because I sort of wondered if it's going to be like exploitation film about sex workers, and I thought, is this going to rub me up the wrong way? But it has a lot more heart. It's got a great mix of heart and stabbiness, and there's a particular sort of I suppose it is a running gag of like a badly hidden body, um, which made me laugh every time it showed up on screen. Um, and yeah, Deadstream really good fun, especially with a crowd as well, and everyone's just like really with some really like smart alecky kids that pop up every, every so often. Um, it's played really broad, but if you are in for that, if you are for that sort of ride, it's yeah, I agree, it's a really really fun time.
2: Yeah. Candyland has the best needle drop of the of the festival. Mm. Agreed. A very, Agreed. Yeah, a very a very nice use of a of an iconic Crowded house song, and just uh, to throw back to Ravens Hollow, where trivia, you know, fact fans, um, the the lead female played by Melanie Zanetti actually voices. Uh Chili Healer, aka Bluey's Mum. And obviously Bluey is big <laughs> kids' animation. So she was at the festival. Uh my three year old is immensely jealous that I've spoken to Bluey's mum. So if you want to see Bluey's what she looks like and her, you know, doing her best sort of Eva Green impersonation, then check out Ravens Hollow when it mans on Shudder soon.
3: Brilliant.
4: I, I second that needle drop remark. I'd said earlier that a wounded form probably had the best end credits of the fest. Uh, Candyland runs in a very close second um, with that mm-hmm. needle drop. Very good. Yeah. yeah.
2: The the only other thing with Saturday is Saturday is also um they do their first bud, which is a lot of first-time filmmakers. So just, mm-hmm. just to quickly mention those films, there's Cerebrum by Sebastian Blanc, there's The Group by Will Hego, there's Walking Against the Rain from Scott Lyus, Bite by James Owen, and The Creeping from Jamie Hooper. So they'll all be like new British independent horrors that are looking for distribution at the moment and they're they're well worth seeking out for each with their own different attributes
0: okay so um on a sunday i will kick off with
4: uh sunday morning in the main screen Mustamar, which uh was a tale of a psychiatrist a troubled psychiatrist and her patients who seem to be uh, either killing themselves or in or in deep distress Um, I thought this was really, really quite bad, really poor (laughs) on the subject of mental health. Uh, you know, you you don't necessarily always go to horror movies for, for a good and and well thought out depiction of mental health. You certainly don't go to, to this one, uh, for that reason. Um, there was the beginnings of a good idea in here, maybe about abuses of psychiatry and so on. um, but uh, it's just not very well worked through, and the editing was—it it had that kind of really jittery, over-edited early noughties thing going on, where there's it just doesn't want to hold a shot. It's just like bit of this, bit of that, bit of this, and uh, you know, little sound effect every time there's there's an edit. So it's constantly th- visually thrashing. And uh, it just, I, I just sat through it with a stony look on my face. Not for me,
2: yeah. yeah um, he's the, the director's got a background in music videos, as was as we were told in the introduction, and that definitely shows 100%. It's It's got some nice atmosphere, but much of the film is just edited to music, like montages to music, and that's yeah, his, his music video roots showed, but it did. Some of us went out for breakfast that morning. It did give me a nice opportunity to have a couple of little naps and, and sleep off that food. So, huh.
1: well, I bad. will uh, be <laughs> the dissenting voice then because I loved Mastema. Um, for me, that very aggressive editing style worked really well. Um, I felt that Mastema was a very gripping and disturbing collision um, of psychological and occult horror. And um, I certainly wasn't dozing off on it. I was feeling seismic emotion during it. Um, mm. But you know, it's always interesting to, uh, I think, identify different responses. This
0: is another one that's being picked up for distribution already, isn't it? Uh, shudder. Yeah, shudder. <laughs> very, very busy.
1: It, oh, it also represents. does that. It's
0: shuddering anyway.
4: <laughs> <laughs> it, it it also does that thing where people get on the phone to each other and say stuff like that latin you gave me i've translated it what does it mean you'd better come and see me and i'll tell you then <laughs> and, and so on and so forth there's at least three separate occasions where people pick up the phone and say i've got something really important to tell you meet me at the church or something like that. um so your, your your level of enjoyment
1: may may vary according to how much you roll your eyes
4: for that kind of deal
1: mm. Um, next up for me was another um, double bill, actually, a short followed by a feature. Um, the short was Love You, Mama, which was a very contained, very mournful and really quite chilling tale about grief and fear. Um, it's I, was, I wasn't very much impressed with shorts that managed to do a lot in that short um, space of time. Um, so, yeah, Love You, Mama was certainly... Um, effective, And that was followed by Wolfkin, or perhaps it would be better known by its original language title, Communion. It's a better um, title. This was something that I, <laughs> I I discovered I was being very P with this movie, because I would describe it as a potent, powerful, and poignant portrait of puberty, privilege, and parenting. <laughs> Fantastic
0: um, alliteration.
1: <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, it's um, not me- not often you see a horror movie set in Luxembourg. Um and Brussels, but uh, this what is and yeah, it's so I guess you could call it a lovely slice of um, Euro horror, which uh, yeah, it's kind of about it had some you know, uses metaphor of something monstrous for puberty um, and then but also go to some fascinating things in terms of um, As I said privilege um, the idea of what the wealthy do um, while at the same time um, I I think, I mean, I'm not a parent, but I think it certainly portrayed some of the challenges um, of parenting in a way that linked very nicely um, to horror. So yeah, Love Your Mama and uh, Communion proved to be a very strong combination.
4: I, yeah. I loved Communion slash Wolfkin. Yeah, Wolfkin uh, is
2: just the wrong title for this film. Yeah, yeah. it's, um, like, it's a way what the film takes a lot longer to reveal.
4: Yeah, So, yeah, Communion digs into i'd go further than privilege it it digs into effectively white supremacy uh and the patriarchy and those two things being you know bonded very close together uh and just really savagely goes for it in terms of satire is too weak a word it just it's a real aggressive takedown by the end of the aristocracy and and the you know the landed gentry and and the implicit white supremacist power slash patriarchy that's embedded in that, uh, and I, I loved it. If you, um, uh, I, I think, as I said in the Q and A afterwards, eat the rich before they eat you, and uh, I think that's a message we can all embrace.
2: Yeah. So the, the story is this: this mother, whose son, as he's approaching puberty, he starts to act out and starts to be aggressive. The the father died or disappeared just after finding out that she was pregnant she has no other choice but to seek out her estranged what in-laws and they are this really wealthy to-do family and immediately on seeing this child they just sort of steal him away from her and then there's this there's basically a power play for the the soul or whatever of this child who's going through some really drastic changes it's it's got echoes of of the babadook in terms of how it's portraying the, the, the motherhood. As somebody that has in-laws um, with different views, it it spoke to me on, on that level. It's, it's this really personal aspect to it that I really, really connected to. It's very somber, it's very quiet. There's just, there is so much going on, but as I've said before, the, the title and the images that have been chosen to be shared with the film are very spoilerific, whereas communion links to some of the other aspect, which is that this family are very religious and our lead character is an atheist. So there's that there's they're basically clashing on every and every front and it's really it's really compelling to see how these two factions uh, weave into and against each other.
4: It's worth pointing out as well, something which won't be obvious to uh, a lot of English speakers and wasn't obvious to me until the the director mentioned it, which was the main mother and her her son speak French and they're coming in from Brussels. They're coming to the in-laws in Luxembourg who speak uh, Luxembourgian dialect, which has a, a number of different words, particularly in casual use. And as they battle for the soul of the sun, he starts to pick up this kind of Luxembourgian dialect mm-hmm. and start speaking in that a little. Um, and that's, so that's a kind of barometer of where his soul is, which I thought was a really cute idea. It's it's a shame that for me as an English speaker, I didn't pick up on that as the yeah. film was going on. But uh, it, it just goes to show how well-written the film is, that they they even at that level, they've... Uh, they've got that kind of battle
1: symbolised. Hmm. Absolutely. Now, something that has come up a couple of times is certain things were very well represented at FrightFest. One of them was science fiction. Another one was French cinema or French language cinema. Um, and another one was canines because um, later on Sunday, um, I saw Wolf Manor. Now, this was another one, unfortunately, like uh, Splinter, which was an interesting premise. Um, there was certainly a, a decent premise in Wolf Manor. Um, it had some impressive gore, but it was, for me, a very painfully paced um, film. It had a really protracted pace, and there were so many points where I was, where I wish I could have taken a nap, but instead I was just going, yes, carry on, get on with it. Um, so um,
0: wrong, it was. Wrong sorry. environment then. If it wasn't in a festival, maybe it'd be a bit more.
2: Oh, it's no, a Dominic film. It, it, had to, it had to play at Fright Fest. It was Dominic Brunt, all of
0: his other films. Oh, no, I mean, just sort of piercing-wise, I mean.
1: No, but I think I would have found it poorly paced in any context. Um, yeah, it it, it's, only, a, it's only like, like 19 minutes. You know, a film crew is shooting a vampire movie at this old uh, grand, old manor house, and it turns out there's a, well, there's a different kind of beastie around the place, which likes, you know, tearing people apart. But they take a while to get to that. Yeah, it's, it's quite fun in places. Yeah. Um, James Fleet plays this old um, classical actor, you know, darling. Um, but, it's, yeah, although it's mm. got these amusing moments, they're not enough to carry the whole film, for my money.
0: Yeah, Werewolf Cinema needs to get back to being a bit more um, visceral. It's a bit too patient these days
2: obviously there was also in incredible but true there was a lot of there was a lot of foreign language films on on sunday incredible but true was was another one which i think you have actually seen rob
0: yes the one <laughs> the festival <laughs> i've seen uh, gerard de pierre is that his his name the rubber um the french auteur that does all sorts of weird weird things
3: oh, i hated rubber <sighs> yeah <it's, laughs> if
0: you've not seen rubber it's the movie about a, a sentient tire that makes people's heads explode. I think there's a relationship drama in there as well. It's a weird movie.
1: Sounds like a film that would tire you out. Oh, wow.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, Incredible But True is a quite an earnest little family drama, but it's got a couple of sci-fi hooks in there. Mm. Um, one of them is that there's a, a couple that are moving into a very lavish, very middle-class French, very big house but in the basement there is a manhole. If you go down that manhole and put the cover down, you'll go forward in the future uh, 12 hours, and you'll be three days younger.
1: That's incredible, but true. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's not all, though. There's also a sub-thread in there, a B-plot, and um, which is boss um, has his penis removed, and it's replaced with some t- um, technical marvel that you can control on your mobile phone. <laughs> and that obviously goes wrong, but um it's very light it's sort of like seventy minutes um yeah. but it has some interesting sort of subtexts on the things people do to themselves for uh cosmetic surgery The where they tear themselves up and build themselves up anew it's interesting but it's kind True. of like yeah I want to make you sleep like for ninety minutes it'll you know it's like a little nice spot there
4: I, I thought it was I thought it was fun um if you like his other movies there will be things in this to enjoy it felt. It didn't feel like it was entirely worked through. It it felt like he had two ideas, each of which might've been a decent short. And he just kind of made one, the B plot of the other and said, this is kind of feature length, but neither of them really went anywhere. The main plot about a mysterious tunnel that has like a time dilation effect felt very similar to something like uh, being John Malkovich, but You know, being John Malkovich, they take that idea and they build on it and they build on it and they turn it in on itself and, they, you know, they twist it into a balloon animal and they wring they everything they can out of that idea and being John Malkovich. In this, not so much. It, it, it causes marital problems. <laughs> and there's not a whole bunch more to it than that. Um, I thought maybe there were, time was going to loop back on itself and it would turn out that the people they bought the house from was themselves, or you know, something of that nature. There's nothing like that. It just, it doesn't really go anywhere that's worth going to. But the journey there is uh, gently amusing.
0: Yes,
2: it for me, it sort of it gets to the interesting part, and then it literally fast forwards to the end
0: because yeah, the so last just, um, ten minutes is basically a montage, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it's like well, you're just sort of getting to what could be the crux of the story, but okay, you've opted to sort of speed through it, which I guess, you know, is is him assuming that the audience, and you can, you can infer, you can fill in the gaps as to what's happening. But when you're only 70 minutes long, you kind of do have that time if you want it to to go into it a little bit more.
0: Yes,
2: 100%. And then if we're finished on that one, the foreign cinema continued on the main screen with Hazard, which was very different in, in tone and style. It's from director uh, Jonas who did a few years ago he did a really like sombre horror set in the woods called cub which was some boy scouts i think there was a werewolf involved and it's written by trent hagar who directed 68 kill and also wrote dead girl and it came from the desert and various other weird and wacky films and this is it's shot in a car it's everything takes place in or just around the car and it's it's one man and his prized Lexus as they go on a journey from hell after a robbery goes goes very wrong. It stars um, uh, it stars a DJ I think it's Dimitri Vegas I think his name is um, okay. who had been performing at Creamfields the day before the the day before the premiere, and it has a very dance heavy soundtrack. I didn't see it in the main screen, but. I imagine that it was a lot that loud because there's there's a lot of, and it's like a lot of like sort of more classical. Da- I mean, God, I feel old saying that, but classical <laughs> dance dance songs like um, "Till I Till I Come." The was it like is it called like nine PM? Till I Come.
4: Yeah. Um, Sandstorm by Derude.
2: That's it. That's the one. Is that? That's one. That's well? the big is one. It?
4: That's the banger. Yeah, I was. I you know, I'm not necessarily much of a dance music fan, but that took me back to my uh, to my twenties or whenever, and um, I was dancing in my seat. Yeah. <laughs> I was grooving away. Uh, it, it's, this is a very kinetic movie, very fast paced, um, just nonstop with the plot points and the gags and the the swerves, uh, both narrative and literal. Uh, as he's driving around in his car, the the camera almost never leaves the car. Uh, not until very late in the film does the camera actually leave the car. So it's it's basically this one guy driving around having the day from hell. And I like a good day from hell movie. I like a good uh, kinetically photographed car movie. Uh, it reminded me a lot of um, Diva. The kind of cinema de look movie, uh, where the guy's racing around on his scooter a lot of the time trying to, uh, retrieve a a cassette tape. Uh, this was a lot like that. The guy's just speeding around his Lexus, uh, which is getting hilariously more and more damaged. Uh, the guy, the director said he couldn't believe Lexus signed off on this movie, but at least it demonstrated that the cars could take a beating and keep on going. So that's one thing at least. Uh, yeah, high energy. Uh, Very silly humour, a lot of fun. I really enjoyed
1: it. Mm. Well, I rounded off uh, Sunday with something that was um, not necessarily a lot of fun because it was actually quite gruelling, but in a good way. Um, And whereas Wolf Manor had a slow pace that was a problem with Swallowed, the deliberate pace was entirely fitting. Swallowed concerns a couple of um, young men who foolishly agree to be drug mules um, to transport some drugs from uh, Maine over to uh, across the Canadian border. And they have to transport these um, drugs that they've swallowed. And it doesn't go very well. Yes, um, it's a <laughs> gripping film. It's relentless. It's an excellent piece of queer cinema, um, the way it uh, treats um yeah, it's, it's, I think it's a, it works as a properly um, queer story. Um, and it's got some very... Uh, what's interesting is I often find that the scariest things are just people and not people who are necessarily melodramatized to be um, psychopaths necessarily or serial killers, but people who are just plain up nasty and followed features a very thoroughly nasty person. Um, who at one point insists I'm not a bad person. Uh thinking, like yeah, yeah, dude. Um, but as well as that, having this element of extremely human horror, it's also got some pretty grotesque body horror as well, with some sort of squee did. Um yeah, swallowed mm. was a uh, chilling way to finish the Sunday.
0: The, um, yeah, it- the Director's a fan of bug horror, if I recall my oh, yeah. correctly. And oh, it plays yeah. on that maybe.
2: Yeah, so it's directed by Carter Smith, who did The Ruins, but it links back to his short film, Bug Crush, in a very direct way. So if you've seen Bug Crush, then this is, in a weird way, a continuation of the bugs that were in that and what they have now come to be to be used for. Um, It's got, as Vincent would say, it's got an excellent performance from Mark Patton, who people will know from Nightmare on Elm Street 2. And it's got a little supporting role from um, Jenna, Jenna Malone from Donnie Darko as the uh, drug dealer that wants them to be mules in the first place. It is very intense and I do not recommend eating during it like I was trying to when I first watched it because it's, yeah, just thinking, it just, it's very tense just to think back to it. Yeah. But it's great.
0: Okay. So that's a Sunday. Uh,
4: um,
2: there's a few more for, for sunday there's a couple
4: more for sunday I cat. there's a couple more cat do you want to go first or shall
2: um well i will i will i will champion um means mean spirited which is from uh, jeff Ryan. it's a vlogumentary it again it's sort of like deadstream and a couple of others at the festival it follows a, an influencer type this time he and his friends are going to visit their other friend, who was once part of their like YouTube channel, but then he went and got uh, he got fit and he got cast in a CW type superhero show where he plays the Thunderman. And they go to a, a cabin in the in the Poconos to to reconnect. They've all been childhood friends, but he's he's grown distant and the the leader of the the and um, the amazing Andy he's very bitter about the fact that his friend has gone on to to become famous but he also believes that maybe his friend isn't his friend anymore and that there's a demonic entity possessing him and it's this power play between the the two friends with the other friends in the middle trying to pick sides about who's telling the truth, who's not. And it's told, it's told in a multi-camera found footage format because there's a crew of them and they're all individually shooting. And at some point it has been edited together into basically an episode of their programme, for for one of a better way of describing it. It feels a little bit like the Ghost Faces episode of Supernatural in a few ways, but it's it's got a lot of comedy. It's got a lot of heart and it it really deconstructs those friendships that films often champion. So you always see, you know, oh we've been friends for life and then, you know, one of them turns to the dark side or whatever and it's but it's their connection to that one friend that they've had since birth that that brings them back and saves the day whereas here it is the opposite. It is that friendship that has completely dissolved what is happening and it's it was a lot of fun and it did offer a slight difference to some of the other found footage that was that was on the table there.
4: I will champion Torn Hearts. That's what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> uh, this is a, a Blumhouse movie, um, but it's, it's Blumhouse's – in the US, it's Blumhouse's TV stream, which goes to epics or something of that nature. Um, so I think it came out there in April. It's coming out here uh, in about a week's time. Uh, on digital. And it's, uh, the tale of the, the titular band, Torn Hearts, who are two, uh, two young women, uh, making their way in the world of country music in Nashville. Uh, up and comers. Will they make it? Will they not make it? It's all in the balance. And they, um, they find out the address of, uh, an old, older country and Western singer who they used to absolutely worship back in the nineties, who has since retreated completely from public life after the death of her sister. So she used to be in a kind of two sisters together type band. And then the sister died and she's retreated to her mansion uh, in that kind of um, sunset boulevard type way. Don't, don't bother me. Don't let anyone talk to me. Uh, so this, this pair of uh, young women, Decide to go up to the mansion and track her down, and they think that maybe if they can, if they can work together on a song, maybe do do a few tracks together, that could be the break they need to really get into the big time. Um, what they don't realize is that not all is as it seems, and this uh, singer that they absolutely worship is not necessarily as. Sane as one might hope. Uh, it's, it's a great thriller set largely in this, um, ramshackle big old mansion where everything's painted a horrible shade of pink, uh, out in the, and the countryside in Nashville. Katie Seagal plays the older woman. Uh, you might know her from Mad with Children or, uh, voicing Leela on Futurama. She's got incredible cheekbones. She really looks the part, incredible country and Western hair. The mannerisms, she gives it the whole shebang. She's just amazing in this. I've really loved her as the kind of uh I don't think it's a spoiler to say big bad of the movie. It's pretty obvious from very early on. Uh but the the um the three of them are all great, the the two younger women as well. Uh I think I said online this was a movie of whiskey decay and shotguns. Uh indoor shotguns in a gothic Nashville nightmare where your friend is just an enemy you haven't made yet. And uh, it's it's really a great time, especially if you like to watch women turning from friends to frenemies and back again. Highly recommended. Uh, the other thing I would say is that uh, in the big screen, the day ended with The Price We Pay, which is no one's idea of a good film, but it had a certain grindhouse appeal that worked for me. Uh, it ripped off an enormous number of other movies, especially multiple Tarantino movies. Uh, it's the tale of it's the tale of a bunch of. Tell me if you've heard this story before. The tale of a bunch of robbers who take a hostage, and then halfway through the movie, suddenly changes genres. You might yeah. be familiar with the general setup. Uh, in this one, the genre it switches to is not a Dusk Till Dawn style vampire movie, but much more of a kind of uh, exploitation. Uh, crazy people out in the, in the desert wilderness type movie of, uh, not, not exactly like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but it's not a million miles away from that kind of deal. So you've got the first half with the, uh, the robbers and the hostage and the drama around that. And then the second half is, uh, just a kind of balls out, ridiculous, splattery kind of deal. Uh, I, I had fun with it. Like I say, it's, it's not, good with the capital G but uh, there were some fun kills and fun gore effects and I had a good time
2: yeah it was for me it was nice to see Emil Hirsch and Stephen Dorff and that film is the price I paid to see them <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> which I think then takes us on to the final day which was Monday Mm. um so one film that started off monday was the documentary living with chucky it's directed by kira gardner who is the daughter of tony gardner who has been the head puppeteer for chucky since i believe it was seed of chucky that he came involved she was at Fest five years ago with her short student short film dollhouse which was kind of like a proof of concept for this so the documentary chronicles all of the child's play films from child's play one two three and then it goes bride seed cult curse whatever and beyond right up until just before they were filming the tv series but then about an hour and a bit in it switches tact and becomes this really personal and emotional story about herself growing up with her dad's hardly ever around because he was always on a film set and a lot of those film sets were the Chucky films and it kind of brings to light the whole thing that I guess a lot of us don't think about is that when people make these films people are leaving friends and family behind and what is it like to be one of those people left behind so the film it explores that and it also discusses a similar thing with um, Brad and Fiona Darif who are now both part of the Chucky universe and a, a father and daughter so it gets her her take on it as well and has it has interviews from everybody that you can imagine involved with chucky don mancini jennifer tilly they get billy boyd when they talk about seed of chucky john walters is is in it because he's briefly i think he's briefly in seed and then randomly abigail breslin because she is one of K- kira's best friends because her dad also did effects work on Zombieland. so it's it's First half is informative and the second half is really personal and emotional and it just combines together to be this like really charming little documentary that anybody with a passing interest in the Child's Play films will have a lot of fun with.
0: Hmm.
1: Let me ask if somebody has no background, experience knowledge or particular interest in the Child's Play franchise, do you think it would work for them?
2: Well the first half brings you up to date on the series but I think the second half definitely because it is so but it we can all relate to people being away from home for a time and how that felt and this this sort of taps into that a lot and it's how they are a crew because it's a lot of the same crew that go time and time again on these on these child play films and it's how they've developed their own family away from home and it's just it's just I guess after the last few years we've had it just Really pleasant to see people being so genuinely caring for one another.
1: Mm. Mm. To offer a counterpoint, I start my first film on Monday was Uyssera. Now, this is a uh, Mexican-Peruvian co-production that was another of the absolute highlights of the festival for me. Um, this film it is compelling, it is terrifying, and it is brilliantly ambiguous. Um, in its portrayal of body horror and psychological fear, suggestions of something occult or supernatural, um, and the very, very human terror, I think, of motherhood and isolation. Um, many will cite uh, the, the great uh, critic Roger Ebert um, as describing cinema as an empathy machine. Now, Usera is about a pregnant mother in Mexico and the problems she faces. These are not necessarily experiences that I have had. In, in fact they're not. I have never been a mother in Mexico, strangely enough. Um, but I was totally engaged, totally with her all the way. It was an astonishing piece of work, I thought. Um, it w- it managed to be both it gave the fun that you want of a horror film while also being, you know, the right kind of serious um, about hmm. what it was doing. Yeah. It sounds like, the a masterpiece. Masterpiece.
0: sounds like you make a good double bill with Tigers and not afraid that one.
1: Possibly, yeah. I think it might well do. I,
4: I will, I'll double up on uh It was, for me, one of the twin highlights of the festival. Um, and we haven't got to the other one yet. That was later this day. Uh, but yeah, absolutely one of my favorite films of the whole deal. Uh, In terms of being a pregnancy horror, it doesn't radically alter that kind of um, uh, narrative format. So if you've seen other pregnancy horrors, it is broadly comparable, but it's just so well done. And it's so culturally specific as well. Uh, The kind of um, Mexican folk medicine aspect to it uh, is really well portrayed. It felt really truthful to me. Uh, I'm not in a position to be any kind of expert on that side of, of Mexican life. Uh, but it it rang true. And it was very female focused as well. So she goes to see women, and there are groups of women. And when that doesn't work, they send her off to some more women who know the darker magic, uh, because now it's getting serious. Uh, so there's a kind of uh, female support network aspect to it that, um, I, th- I, I thought really rang true and really resonated. Um, uh, there's great depiction of the kind of slow decay of the, uh, the marriage where the husband is normally supportive, but increasingly less so. Uh, it was really well realized. The, the quote unquote monster. Uh, is awesome, a kind of broken-backed person that slithers around on the ground with their bones sticking out of the flesh. Uh, it's, all the imagery is really well tied into stuff you learn about her childhood and her earlier life, and, uh, it, and that's done in a way that really ties together and feels psychologically well thought through. Um, so I, I thought it was great. And not to give away the ending, but it, it got a cheer out of me. It's got a bold ending that I really liked and which a lot of movies wouldn't have gone for. So thumbs up. Loved it.
2: And yeah, at the same time as both of these films in the main screen was a Spanish film called Piggy. It's the, the, so the director, Carla Parada, she made a short film a few years ago with the same name. And this transplants that short... Into the feature, there's a little bit before, like 10, 15 minutes of setup. Then it's the short and then it's the aftermath of the short. And it's basically this, this overweight girl who's being bullied by the kids in the teenage girls in, in the village. Those teenage girls are very, they, they are just so horrendously mean to her and they, they bully her so horrifically. And then in the aftermath of that bullying episode, They find themselves bundled in the back of a van by a a serial killer. And then it's this whole moral quandary of does this girl that's just been bullied so severely by these girls, does she help the girls or does she maybe not help the girls? And it's really interesting with how the the story plays out with, with that because I don't know if I would help these girls because they very much deserved some of what they get.
4: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And if, if you're listening to this podcast and you're interested in maybe checking out Piggy, but you're not sure it is an expansion of uh, a short film called Piggy from the same director, which is available on YouTube as part of the mm-hmm. Alter stream. They put out a lot of horror shorts. It's 13 and a half minutes and it's kind of more or less act one of the film uh, in, in short form. So um if you're interested in Piggy the feature uh, and you're trying to decide if you want to splash your cash on it you can check out the short film version of Piggy right now.
1: Uh, something which uh, came along uh, later on Monday and was um very weird was kind of, was was a double bill of a of the Once and Future Smash uh along with End Zone 2. Now the Once and Future Smash I would describe as This is Spinal Smash, because (laughs) in the best Christopher Guest style, it's a very knowing mockumentary, um, and it's presenting some scenarios that are pretty absurd. But in doing so, it's also doing this sly mocking that demonstrates some deep affection. And what it's showing deep affection for is um, cheap um, 70s, 80s slasher horrors, and you get some of that uh, with Endzone 2, which is, you know, not good. It's a cheap, shonky, stilted, painful attempt at a slasher. It has no tension, thrills or scares or even logic. But what's fascinating in the Once and Future Smash, even though it's mocking this, it's doing it in a way that isn't being um, dismissive of horror fans. And it's ultimately, I think, about horror conventions Now, there is an important secret about the once and future smash um, in terms of the subject of Zone 2, which I'm not going to reveal, but um, they make for a very interesting double bill.
2: Yeah, I think that Michael and Sophia were very nice people to talk to during the festival. I agree. Uh, I... I did not get one of the films. I to be to be fair, I watched them the opposite way round to the way that Fright Fest programmed them. Uh, Fright Fest programmed um The Once and Future Smash and then End Zone Two and I watched them the other way around due to time constraints. From talking to Michael and Sophia, they have had a lot of back and forth with a lot of festivals about which way in which order to, to play them. And to me, I preferred my way of watching them, but it then made watching the once in future smash almost unbearable it was not for me it was too it was too silly and again without sort of spoiling the the, the thing behind them although i'm not sure because so i think i'm pretty sure it's in the synopses of of them but it just felt too silly and it started off as a mockumentary and then just became this like silly little story about these three men at a convention and yeah it it, it wasn't for me at all I, like I say they were very nice at the festival to talk to but it, it was it was not one for me um what was for me and I think what was for a lot of other people was sissy which again is coming to shudder just before just before halloween uh, it's a an australian dark comedy where a, a wellness influencer she spent her life sort of like giving people mantras to how to better themselves she bumps into her, her former best friend from childhood who's about to get married, she gets invited along to the to the to the hen weekend and goes along and finds herself face to face with their childhood bully. And there's this power play between these two women over the their shared friend and basically seeing this bully triggers Cecilia or Sissy. And it all gets a little bit American, a American psycho, but with a pink glitter girl power slant to it. And it's just very entertaining slice of Australian cinema.
4: Another entry in the desperate influences uh, category yes. of horror. Yes,
1: Also well uh, represented.
4: Absolutely.
1: Uh, and I, I,
4: plus one for Sissy. It's, it's really great. And I urge people to check it out.
1: Um, at
4: the same time as Sissy on the main screen, was Terrifier 2. Uh, and if you've watched demon clown movies before and you've thought to yourself, this is pretty good, but the trouble is it's it's not two hours, 18 minutes long, then you are in luck, my friend, because that's what you get from Terrifier 2, uh, uh, an incredibly lengthy Uh, demon clown movie with um, uh, gore and more gore and maybe a dream sequence then another dream sequence and then more gore and clown goofing around and then some more gore Um, it was I like the first half of Terrifier 1 after that it got a little bit boring for me and that was at a reasonable runtime. Uh, two hours, 18 minutes of this kind of stuff is just much too much for me. And also, it has a mythology. It seems to be building up, but it's very unclear. And I know from speaking to people who've spoken to the directors and so on, that apparently it's deliberately unclear. They want to have a kind of playful mythology that's hard to pin down but it just feels so random there's like a, a second clown is hallucinated uh, there's a dead father who had a brain tumor who could predict the future there are all kinds of stuff going on uh, and it apparently deliberately doesn't tie together very clearly so if you if you like a really kind of um seemingly illogical uh lengthy uh, aspect to your your Demon Clown films, this might be for you. Uh, there are bits in it I enjoyed. Towards the end, some of the imagery is pretty pretty esque and it leans heavily into just surrealism. Uh, and there were bits of that I quite liked, but uh, frankly, you would need to watch the first one first. And you've watched the first one and you're not really sold. I don't think you'd be sold on this either. Hmm.
0: got a reputation for being... Um... A tad mean-spirited the first one
4: yeah and this this one is similarly mean-spirited the one thing i would say is that the bit i really didn't like in the first one is a bit where a, a woman gets hacked in half with a uh, with a hacksaw and she's uh, it goes on for quite a while she's naked and her boobs are bouncing around and there's blood trickling over her boobs and it felt like very sexualized violence mm. uh, in a way that probably supposed to be a throwback but it just left an unpleasant taste in my mouth what i will say about this one is it's very mean-spirited in terms of mostly women getting their faces ripped off and all kinds of stuff but it's never quite sexualized in the same way I don't off the top of my head recall seeing a single nipple so uh, they might have dialed that aspect back very slightly but they've dialed everything else up to the max so uh, there's, there's blood on the walls for sure That's
2: good to hear that they sort of died that back because that death that you're talking about just angered me to no end with the first one, which is why I didn't actively seek out the second one. Very different in tone to Terrifier 2 was New Religion, which was a Japanese film from, I think it's pronounced Kaisi Kondo. I'm terrible with, with, with names. And it's a first time feature it's very hard to explain but it's a film that it just attacks the senses so this this woman who she's lost her daughter she's a she becomes a call girl and her new client he he just wants to take pictures of her he wants to take pictures of her hands and her spine and her feet and as they keep going to these sessions she slowly starts to unravel so i guess it's almost like a riff on the the idea that the the camera takes a piece of you you know the camera steals your soul but it's also this. It's so it's so hard to explain. It's a film that has to be sort of experienced. But it's a, a, a complex like analysis on on grief and losing oneself. And it's it's all set within this like red room which looks gorgeous. And there's this horrible droning, almost Vangelis sort of like thrum that happens during these photo sessions that is so painful and so oppressive that you're willing these scenes to end just because this noise is just too much. And then when it does end and it cuts and it's this, it suddenly goes to nature and quiet, there is an audible, like, oh, thank God. So it really does place the viewer in this really uncomfortable position as they are experiencing this sort of sensory overload. So I would, I would highly recommend that. I think that was my only sort of five-star film of the festival, purely from the technical aspect. And I I can't necessarily explain fully what was going on, but I enjoyed what I was seeing and what I was experiencing. And then on the opposite side of that is Power Tour Cheerleaders versus the boy (laughs) band of the Screeching Dead, which is a horror comedy zombie musical, which pits a team of not hugely competent Cheerleaders against a boy band who end up becoming zombies. In the setting of a Britain's Got Talent type talent show, there's there's lots of song. It obviously feels a little bit like a high school a high school play where the teacher's just gone, yeah, do what you want, <laughs> and it, it's because it, it's a low budget, so it's got the sort of a similar sort of like high school production values to it. But it's got a lot of heart. This was three years in the making. Charlie Bond, who produced it and plays the lead, is is lovely, and the songs. Are horribly catchy there's one there's like a, a screamo one called exercising grandma which it gets it's trapped and then there's another one called game of soldiers which is just and it's in there now again because i've just mentioned it it just keeps coming back <laughs> in my head so it's got it's not quite anna and the apocalypse levels zombie zombie musical because the production values aren't quite there but it's got it's got a lot of a lot of heart it shares a lot of the same cast and crew with eating Miss Campbell, but is a much more palatable prospect. We
0: had a weird little uh, run of horror musicals recently with that. Um, yes. Was it The Lair, the Polish vampire? Um, the Lair, yes. Yeah. Oh, that's it, yeah. Love's oh, great, yeah. Every song in that will get itself uh, jammed in your head, guaranteed.
1: Now, the only films I have left to talk about were both in the in the main uh, screen, the Arrow screen, on Monday. So maybe we should leave those till the end, but perhaps anything else anyone wants to mention?
2: No, I mean, obviously Monday's a slightly quieter day, so I think I think mm-hmm. we're all sort of at the the main screen, I think.
1: Now, I, now for the next film in the main screen, I think we have to be fairly uh, limited in what we say about it at this stage. Um, so I will simply say that the next film up was Barbarian, and I found it... Really, really cool. That's the hit of the festival, isn't it?
0: (laughs) That's the takeaway from that one. It's the hit of the festival. Well,
1: it's one that benefits from not knowing much about it. So, listeners, go see Barbarian knowing as little about it as possible.
4: We can Um, review this film if the podcast drops on September 7th or later. Before that,
0: unfortunately.
1: Yeah, (laughs) it's dropping the 2nd of September, right? (laughs) There we go. In,
4: In that case, we cannot review barbarian but we can talk about it on socials so i am uh perhaps we can get around that if i simply read out what i said on socials and then read that your,
2: read your social media reaction i will
4: read out my social media reaction um i said barbarian no spoilers brackets going cold all in capitals uh but i really dug the hell out of this excellent direction superbly cast and performed by uh, Georgina Campbell, British actress, but uh, doing a great American accent here. Bill Skarsgård and Justin Long, cast against type, all great. Uh, There's a tense pounding score and then WTF. And then I've got a little (laughs) explosion emoji. And then I, I finish by saying, seriously, film of the fest question mark and um i can say no more than that because i'm not reviewing it i'm simply reading i reading out what
1: i said on social there we go what i said on social and actually i realise what i put on social is kind of a spoiler so i'll just do the non-spoilery bit i my twitter review is that it's compellingly creepy and gleefully gruesome
0: just question the spoiler thing um, N.O.P. has just come out recently, and there was a big sort of hurrah about not spoiling that. And having seen it, it kind of blown out of context a little bit. It doesn't really need to go in um, blind for that one. Is it the same here, or is it genuinely no? I think to, uh, one called the it. dead style, no nothing. Yes. Yeah. Okay, that's fair enough.
2: Yes, I can't give any response because I didn't. I didn't see it because I was. I was on the media wall interviewing um, Draco Malfoy, so. Um, I now have to wait with everybody else to see it, which I'm very irritated about because I really wanted to see it. But you know, when there's a Potter star in the building, you kind of have to go and talk to them. So,
4: Cat, this means my two films of the festival, Huissara and Barbarian, <laughs> are the two films you didn't see. But on, on the flip side, you've got one on me because I think your film of the festival, New Religion, and I didn't manage to see that. So <laughs> there we go.
2: Yes, I was surprised to see who Sarah, but then my trains decided that they didn't want to work, so I had to miss it. Which, So yes, I'm very angry at the trains in Tom Felton at this point in time. Um, but then the the festival ended on a, a literal high, 2,000 yeah. feet up on uh, the top of an abandoned radio tower. where two friends, united by the, the grief of the loss of one of them's husbands, decided to do a, a climb in his honour, to the top of this radio tower, where then they find themselves stuck for the bulk of of two hours. Hell no. It's directed directed (laughs) by Scott Mann, and he has done everything he can to, even if you... Are okay with heights. You're probably not going to be okay with heights. Terrified you're watching
0: of watching fall. At least. Absolutely terrified of heights. So it's a no, huge no for me on this one.
2: <laughs> I mean, I, I watched it at home, and my husband's got a great head for heights, and he was shifting uncomfortably, complaining that his palms were getting sweaty during it. And on that IMAX screen, it would be so much more intense. And obviously, you know that you guys who were there, I think, can can attest to.
4: I I watched it I'm on IMAX screen. I I saw from Vertigo. Not huge vertigo, but I definitely suffer from vertigo. I um, had to look away during the opening scene in Mission Impossible 2 with Tom Cruise. I had to look away during the opening scene of uh, Star Trek 5, which despite the fact is very clearly not a real cliff face, I, I just can't watch it. Uh, the recent documentary Free Solo, I had my head between my knees for much of that. Uh, so I watched Fall on an IMAX screen. And I have never before looked so intensely at the water bottle next to my ankle <laughs> <laughs> rather than at the screen. And I gave myself a tension headache, which lasted four hours. But oh, in gosh. terms of like it being terrifying, it was the most terrifying film that I have seen in probably my entire adult life. I realise that's just on me and my vertigo.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I have um, never, to my knowledge, suffered from vertigo, um, and I, you know, I did watch the whole of fall in my seat, but that's probably because I was too tense to move. I Afterwards, I was sort of uncricking my shoulders, and it's like, hang on, were my shoulders trying to connect to my ears or something? Um, yeah, it's such a brilliantly simple premise. Two women, top of a tower. Well, quite frankly, it, it is way, one way I would sum it up, um, is it's gravity on a pole. <laughs> um, and it's with the same kind of closeness and intensity. Um, and you know, and the enemy is gravity because you know uh, you fall and it's, um, not going to be pleasant. Um, it's nerve shredding. It's intense. Um, it's got some lovely themes of ingenuity and friendship and the combined, the combinations of humanity and technology, um, Back at Glasgow Fright Fest this year, there was a film called *The Ledge*, which I was very excited to see, and turned out to be absolutely terrible. Um, and *Fall* does everything that *The Ledge* didn't, um, and it's weird because they are very similar. They're both involved. They're
2: also know, they're also both signature entertainment titles.
1: There you go. Wow. Um, so For,
4: yeah. *Fall* is the good *The Ledge*, but then again. I enjoyed The Legend the same way I enjoyed Croc. So yes. uh, it, it has its pleasures. But Fall is definitely the quote-unquote good version of that.
1: Absolutely. Yes. And, yeah, it was. And a whole bunch of moments in where you where I did find myself saying, like, oh, hell no. Oh, no, don't do that. Oh, fuck me. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, on an IMAX screen, it's um, – I've never really been a great fan of climbing, and I'm not going to change that perspective.
2: <laughs> I never thought I would invest so much in the safety of a mobile phone as I did when I was watching Fall. Mm. Um, it became its own, like, please don't let anything happen. It would normally it'd be like, please don't let anything happen to, to, to the dog, to the cat. And this is a like, don't let anything happen to that fucking phone. Like, seriously, let's say that phone. But it's because the actors were actually that high up. They cheated it slightly. So they found a, a mountaintop that was... was reasonably high and then they built uh, like a 200 foot structure whatever on top of that oh over the over the side of the edge so that they could go up high and they could do the looking down shots and it would look all the way down and they had the stunt team who did the burj khalifa uh, mission impossible stunt that was the the stunt team so there's obviously like a lot of caliber to to that those guys know what they're doing working at heights um, but it's just a, it's. There's there's some cliches to some of the narratives, but the the actual visuals of them being up that high are so intense, and they do need to be seen in the cinema. It is out. This is going out on Friday, the second of September, I believe, which is when fall arrives into cinemas, and I will be rectifying having to miss it at Fright Fest and going and scaring myself silly by seeing it
1: in the cinemas. Yeah, I'm so will interested. you go and see it in IMAX though? <laughs>
2: They aren't releasing it in IMAX. They Ah. didn't get the IMAX print over here, so I will see it
4: in whatever my cinema is showing it in. I will. To to to, I've got two more things to say. One is that narratively there are some cliches in this. Yeah. Uh, In terms of how every little thing from the first fifteen minutes of the movie turns out to be an important setup for. Something later on in the film. Even the most trivial little details turn out to be uh, foreshadowing something absolutely vital and, and life saving or life endangering. Uh, so it's very narratively highly structured in that way, which gets a little bit cheesy. But I didn't mind like that too much. Um, the other thing I'll say is that the best way to describe my visceral, visceral reaction to this film was that uh, the way some people, as a plane takes off, just grip their armrests and all they can think of is man was not meant to be this high man was not meant to do this we are we are thumbing our noses in the face of god we are defying physics itself and we shall be punished that's all they can think of that's how i felt watching this film as they were climbing up this tower all i can think of is why would you do this why
1: would you do this because Um, it's there there
4: we go because, well, it's just, it, uh, there was part of me at the back of my brain that just went, if they fall off, they've only got themselves to blame. <laughs> <laughs> mm. And
1: I and- would say one last thing on Fall. If you're dubious about whether you want to see the film or not, I think just look at the poster. You don't even need to watch the trailer. The poster alone mm. gives you a sense of the film and will give you a sense of whether it's for you or not. I don't I fancy. Do at the
0: cinema, so not for me.
1: Yes, um, so we've
0: went through a lot of movies there. I mean we will, must be knocking on a hundred for the whole festival or not far away from it. Um so it's a cruel question, I know, because you said many a times this is one of my favourites of the festival, but you have to be cruel to be kind. Um free for Mike, because he only did the one day, but for the rest of your top five films you saw at this festival. So Mike, first. You're three.
3: Ooh, Uh that's tough actually. Oh no, you gotta um, be
0: cruel though sometimes and
3: uh, no it's true. That's what I'm doing. I think uh, I <laughs> um hypochondriac, I think that's the film I think I want like I want everyone to see. Yeah. Um, as, as Kat said earlier, I'm, I'm not sure what distribution is going to be. I think mean, he did say it was like this was the, the, one of the last screenings um, in a cinema, so hopefully that will get a good distribution here in the UK because I know it's been out in America. And then something in dirt is one I definitely want to go back to. I think I could pour over that, yeah, time and time again. That's um, I really really like that. And and actually Candyland, um, that, that that was I as the one that surprised me most and the one that I. Again, really enjoyed it. Okay, like, yeah okay, so it's
0: three. Um, Vincent, seen as though seems most prepared for this question, so uh, you're
1: fine. Yeah, I am prepared. I actually ranked all 26 films that I saw from Fright Fest. So, yes, I was wow. ready for this one. Um, number five for me is Swallowed. Number four, The Visitor from the Future. Number three, Fall. Number two was Sarah. And my number one is Lola.
0: Okay. Very good. I don't know who's my prepared, uh, Andrew or Cat. So, uh, who wants to? I'll
4: take it. I'll take a shot of it. My my fifth place could go to any number of things: Lola, Wolfkin, Fall, Deadstream. But I'm going to give it to who invited them? The kind of bougie home invasion uh, horror of manners. Uh, that was really nicely done. Great ending. Uh, number four. I love Argento I'm glad that he's back on some kind of form I'm going to give it to Dark Glasses despite the uh, drop off in the third act for me Uh, there was just too much of that old Argento style back in play for me to for me to uh, step over this one Um, I liked it Uh, number three The Harbinger Uh, the kind of dream horror lockdown COVID um, quietly apocalyptic thriller Harbinger's really good uh, number two, Huésera, the uh, Mexican pregnancy horror, uh, really well portrayed, culturally specific, great monster, great ending. And my number one. Um, this absolutely isn't a review, but it's Barbarian. No further
0: comment. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, cat. Uh,
2: so yeah, I saw seventy-four. Of the films, and wow. I've only dropped four films from the entire festival. So whirling it down to five is a little bit tricky. Um, <laughs> Sorry about so, that. <laughs> <laughs> um, hypochondriac, I absolutely adore, and I've loved since South by mm. Southwest. So I guess that has to sort of have have the top spot. Although I did technically see it somewhere else. So it
3: was a it was in mind. You can do something else.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um. So. I'd say in no other, in no order, the, the other really, the big highlights for me were A Wounded Fawn by Travis Stevens, Night Sky from Jacob, uh, Jacob Gentry. I really enjoyed the, the heart and the spirit that went into, into Mean Spirited by, by Jeff Ryan. And The Leech from Eric Penikoff is just perfect and I can't wait to watch it again at Christmas. So that's, that's five. Yeah. Let's go with those. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, oh, daughter if we're going to leave hypochondriac out then daughter by Corey Deshawn I mean nothing else go watch Casper Van Dien as you've
4: never seen him before I'm so glad you said daughter wonderful
0: excellent selection of uh, movies there so I think that um, wraps us up um, for this special episode Um, coming up in the next episode will be part one of uh, Takashi Kitano so to sign out um Mike, where can we find you and your work online?
3: (laughs) Uh, So the best place to find me, uh, I run uh, the blog, An Autistic Guide Through Horror. So you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at Autistic Horror. uh, And I also do reviews for The Geek Show.
0: Hmm. Um, Vincent, same
3: question. You can find me on
1: Twitter, Instagram and Letterboxd um, at Dr. Gain. That's D-R-G-A-I-N-E. I I also write um, reviews for The Critical Movie Critics, uh, Bloody Good Screen and, already mentioned, The Geek Show. And you can also find uh, my podcast, um, Invasion of the Poddy People, on all good podcast providers. Yes, uh, Andrew. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, where I
4: tweet as uh, Pope. I'm Andrew Pope. Uh, it, the Twitter account is named after my blog, which I co-run with my uh, co-editor, Genesis Whitlock. So you can find that at WhitlockandPope.com. Uh, you can also find it for you VHS 94 fans you can also find it if you type in uh, hailratma.com if you spell it correctly which redirects there which is a bit of fun there we go excellent (laughs) and uh, Kat
2: so on Letterboxd and Twitter and Instagram I am at Gizma Shikari I primarily write for the Hollywood News at THN.com on Twitter and um, yeah, you can find links to other places that I write on my, uh, on my link tree, on my page. So yeah, seek out, seek out this. I have, like I say, I have reviewed over 70 of the films that screened at Fright Fest, so if there's anything that you'd like to know a little bit more about, then feel free to, uh, to head over to the site and, and check them out.
0: Excellent, and I have been your host, uh, Rob. You can find me on social media at uncutrobcast at uncut Bcast. And that has been a mammoth edition of Directors and Cut. (laughs)